with songs from her vast catalog. September 24th, Strathmore.org. Panoramic Wi-Fi from Cox, their most advanced Wi-Fi experience for your home. More information at Cox.com. Annapolis is showing 80 degrees, clear and falling. Frederick, Maryland, 84. And Ocean City, 75 degrees. Hey, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James. Thanks so much for listening tonight. This is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University in HD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City and live at WAMU.org. It's the big broadcast. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight, Bob Hope, Irving Berlin, and Edward R. Murrow are on hand to help us mark the anniversary of the end of the Berlin Airlift. And if you don't know about the Berlin Airlift, stay tuned. It's quite a dramatic tale. We'll also hear a love story that centers on that amazing military operation called the Big Lift. It stars Edmund O'Brien and Paul Douglas on Screen Director's Playhouse. We'll celebrate the birthday of Orson Welles' great collaborator and later Smith Barney's great commercial pitchman, John Houseman, with his Columbia Workshop production of The Trojan Women. Plus Gunsmoke, Henry Morgan, Dragnet, and Terrible Danger, physical and psychological, on High Adventure. There's lots on offer, so settle back, relax, don't give a thought to any of the cares and concerns of last week and try to postpone worrying about anything that may come up next week until at least tomorrow. Instead, exercise your imagination for a few hours and you can start with an adventure from America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, one with a lot of twists. It's called The Killer's List Matter and it comes from March 30th, 1958, CBS, AFRTS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Pat Cummings, Interallied Life. Hi, Pat. What's new with you? Johnny, ever hear of Everett Benton? No, I'm afraid not. Investment firm down in New York. Real estate, oil, mining, this and that. What about him? We're carrying a $100,000 life policy on him. So? So last night he fell out of a 14-story window. Oh, that's too bad. Accident, Pat, or was it suicide? Maybe neither. I think he got pushed. I'll be right over. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Inter-Allied Life Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the killer's list matter. Expense account item one, $1.20 for a taxi from my apartment to the offices of Inter-Allied. Pat Cummings looked worried and got straight to the point. I don't know, Johnny. Maybe Benton wasn't pushed out that window. But there's something about this deal that just doesn't smell right to me. What can you tell me about this man, Benton? Everett Benton, 45 years old, doing very well in business, so far as we know. 
Last night, about 10 o'clock, he fell or jumped or was pushed out of his office window. This policy on him, who's the beneficiary? His wife, Claire. What's she like? About 12 years younger. Redhead. I see. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I think I better have a talk with Mrs. Benton. Item two, fourteen dollars forty cents, transportation and incidentals to New York City. The Benton's apartment was on East Sixty Seventh. Very fashionable, very expensive, and Claire Benton looked right at home in her surroundings. Do you mind if I fix us a drink, Mister Dollar? Not at all, Mrs. Benton. It's been a pretty wearing day. I imagine it has. Police questions, reporters. You yeah, know. I'm sorry to be throwing more questions at you at a time like this. I'm used to it by now. Here's your drink. Thanks. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. You know, you certainly seem to be bearing up very well. Yes, I suppose so. Mr. Dollar, I think it would save time and embarrassment if we had a few things understood. Such as? You've heard of the ideal marriage. Well, Everett's and mine was not it. Oh. Naturally, I'm very sorry he did what he did, but... Well, we weren't exactly happy together. I take it you think he committed suicide, Mrs. Benton? Is there any doubt about that? Apparently not, in your mind. None at all. If it was suicide, why did he do it? I wouldn't know. Everett hadn't confided in me for some time. We haven't been very close recently. Oh, Mrs. Benton, just suppose it wasn't suicide. Everett had no enemies that I knew of. I see. About the insurance policy... Yes, about the insurance policy, Mr. Dollar. A hundred thousand dollars, isn't it? That's right. When you get ready to file a claim. I intend to in the morning. I see. Oh, and one other thing. It just so happens that I have an alibi for last evening. Oh? And it's the nicest kind of alibi there is, Mr. Dollar. What do you mean? It's airtight. And that was Claire Benton. Very calm and collected. And incidentally, anxious to collect. I thought her over all the way to the office of Detective Lieutenant Tovich of Homicide. That's item three, $1.60 care fare. Yeah, I talked to her, Johnny. She's a hard one to figure out. What do you think, Tovich? Did he jump or get pushed? You got any ideas? How about financial troubles? He was in the investment business. Have you looked into that? According to his lawyer, his affairs are in good shape. Oh, he'd made his share of poor investments over the years. Wildcat oil leases, stuff like that. But in general, he was doing okay. He was worth a lot of dough, Johnny. Okay, let's assume he was pushed out that window. What was he doing in his office at 10 p.m.? I've wondered about that, too. Any indication anybody was with him? No. The night watchman was in another part of the building when Benton came in. Let himself in with his own key. There could have been somebody else with him, all right. But who? Claire Benton says she has an alibi. Yeah. Don't know as I care for it much, but I haven't been able to break it down. Who is her alibi? Larry Santis. 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 Runs a supper club over in the East 50s. Yeah. The Ace of Clubs, he calls it. Larry Santis. Thanks, Tovich. So I went calling again. But this time it was different from my visit to Claire Benton. In the first place, Santis didn't offer me a drink, and in the second place, he wasn't very friendly. Now, uh, look, Dal, I already told the cops that Claire was here in the club last evening. All evening? Until midnight. Out in the bar? Most of the time, what difference does it make? How about the rest of the time? We were talking here in my office. Just the two of us? Just the two of us. Now, look, Dal, I... What it boils down to is you've each got alibis for one another, huh? That's right. 
Now look, nosy boy, Claire didn't kill Benton. At the moment, I wasn't thinking so much about her. Well, wait a minute. If you're trying to pin this on me... You and Claire have been pretty friendly, Santas. She benefits to the tune of a hundred grand by Benton's death. Look, Dollar, Dollar, you're blowing smoke in the wrong direction. I like the arrangement the way it was. Why should I try to change it? Well, that's a good question. So just let it drop. You get me? You got nothing to worry about, Santas. If you've got nothing to hide. I don't want this kind of publicity. It's bad for my business. You know what's wrong with you, Dollar? You got nose trouble. Yeah, occupational disease. You better just get over it. Sometimes it turns out to be fatal. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Killer's List Matter. Like you didn't get any further with Larry Santis than I did, Johnny. Look, Tovich, both Santis and Claire Benton had a motive for killing her husband. Matter of fact, two motives. Money and getting Benton out of their way. Johnny, I'm with you. But we're not even sure yet it was murder. We do have something that indicates somebody might have been in Benton's office with him, though. Yeah, what is it? We found a cigarette butt in one of the ashtrays. Different brand than Benton smoked. Could it have been left there during the day? Janitor says he cleans out the ashtrays about seven in the evening. Of course, he could have overlooked one. So I don't know whether it means anything or not. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Homicide, Tovich. Oh? Where? Okay, uh, I'll be right over. Well, Johnny, looks like we've got ourselves a little epidemic. What do you mean? Ever hear of a guy named Arthur Mayfield? Promoter? No, what about him? They just found him in an alley. Dead. Wait a minute. Don't tell me. Yeah. Fell out of a 10th floor hotel room. Lieutenant Tilbich and I went over to the West Side Hotel where Mayfield's body had been discovered. There was nothing in this room to indicate anyone had been there with him. As a matter of fact, there was nothing curious. Item four, a dollar eighty cab fare to Claire Batten's apartment. Mr. Dollar, I really don't see the point of this. I've told you twice that I did not know this Arthur Mayfield. Did you ever hear your husband mention his name? I've never heard the name until now from you. <sighs> Mrs. Benton... Mind telling me where you were last night around midnight? I take it that's when Mayfield died. Approximately. I, uh, I suppose you have an alibi. You suppose correctly. You know something? I wouldn't be at all surprised if you were about to tell me you were with Larry Santis again. You know something, Mr. Dollar? That's exactly where I was last night. I know, Tovich. I know it could be just a coincidence that two guys fall or jump or get shoved out of windows within 24 hours. But I got a hunch there's some kind of connection between them. Could be, Johnny. But so far, we haven't been able to find it. Well, how about their past? The armed forces, maybe. I've already checked that out. The answer's no. Could they have been involved in any sort of business deal? I asked Benton's attorney about that. He's checking through all of his papers. He's promised to call me. And you haven't been able to find any organization they both belong to? Any situation in which they could have been thrown together? Not so far. Unless they served on a jury together, something like that. Well, don't laugh. That could be it. And they might have convicted somebody who took this way of getting revenge. Well, I'll check it out and call you if we find a connection. But don't count on it, Johnny. Don't count on anything. I went back to my hotel room and stretched out on the bed while I rehashed the whole deal in my mind. I thought about Claire Benton and Larry Santis. 
I didn't trust either of them. But as Tovich had pointed out, it was another thing to prove it. Okay, okay, coming. Yeah? Mr. Dollar? That's right. You're investigating the murders of Benton and Mayfield? Well, I don't think they've been officially described as murders. Oh, but they are, Mr. Dollar. I'm certain of it. Who are you? Uh, my name is Alvin Whiting. I have some information that may be of value to you. May I come in? Come in. Come in. Thank you. If you don't mind, I'd like to look out the window a minute. You're being followed? I don't know. But it wouldn't surprise me. What is this information you have, Mr. Whiting? A couple of years ago, three men got together and bought an oil lease from a man named Tom Nolan. Did you ever hear of it? No. Well, he's a very eccentric man, hot-tempered, violent. He needed the money badly, so he sold the lease, which then was little better than worthless. Benton and Mayfield were in that deal together. I see. But I still don't understand what that has to do with their murders. I'm convinced their killer is Tom Nolan getting revenge on them in his own warped way. Revenge? For buying a worthless oil lease from him? Last week, oil was discovered on that property, a lot of it. The property is now worth millions. Ah. I think that Nolan, with his twisted way of looking at things, probably feels that he was cheated out of that property. You're suggesting that this Nolan isn't quite all there, huh? Exactly. That's exactly what I mean. What's your connection with all this, Mr. Whiting? I'll tell you what my connection is, Mr. Dollar. I was in on the deal with Benton and Mayfield. I was the third man. Ah. So, you see, if my suspicions are correct, if Nolan is the killer, then I'm the next man on his list. And now, Act Three of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and the Killer's List Matter. I took Alvin Whiting down to Lieutenant Tovich's office and he told his story again. I could see that Tovich felt the same way I did, that at last we were getting someplace. Matter of fact, Johnny, I was about to call you. Benton's lawyer just turned up the lease agreement linking Benton, Mayfield, and Mr. Whiting here. Question is, where's Tom Nolan? I don't think I'll draw an easy breath until he's been found and arrested. We have a bulletin out on him, Mr. Whiting. One thing we found out, about a year ago, he served time for assault and battery. Oh? Mr. Whiting, I'd suggest you take every precaution until we pick up Nolan. Don't worry, Lieutenant. I propose to remain in my apartment until you apprehend him. I'll post a man in the building to look after you. Thank you, sir. Homicide, Tovich. Oh, what's the address? Hmm. All right. Thank you. We've located the little hotel where Nolan's been staying. Come on, Johnny. That's Mr. Nolan's room at the end of the hall, Lieutenant. Ah, okay, clerk. Is he in? I don't know. I really haven't seen him since he rented the room from me. How long ago was that? Oh, about a week ago, Mr. Dollar. If he's gone out since then, it must have been at night when I was off duty. Here we are. Now, try your pass key quietly. Right. Well, gone. Bag and baggage. Yeah. Room's been used recently, though. Hey, in this ashtray, cigarette butt. Mm. Same brand we found in Benton's office. Doesn't prove anything, but it might tie in. Yeah, Tom Nolan could be our boy, but where is he? You say he rented the room from you, clerk. What do he look like? Oh, middle-aged, as I remember. Bushy hair, sort of a wild look to him. Fits the general description Alvin Whiting furnished us. And the mugshot I pulled out of the files. Well, all we can do now is rig a stakeout for him here. And then wait. 
Lieutenant Tovich posted a couple of men in Nolan's room, and we went back to headquarters. While he was getting out another bullet, and I went through Nolan's record. Assault and battery, resisting arrest. There was no doubt he was a violent sort of guy. And with the indication Whiting had given us that Nolan was a little unbalanced, the weird revenge motive might fit. Then something in the records caught my eye. I went back to the office of Larry Santos at a supper club. Oh, look, Dal, I told you the last time you were here... Now, I got a few things to tell you, Santos. The two murder victims, Mayfield and Benton, went in on a business deal with a man named Alvin Whiting. All right, so what? They bought an oil lease from Tom Nolan. All of a sudden, last week, that lease got real valuable. Alvin Whiting figures that Nolan's the killer. Says he's not all there, and he was trying to get his own strange kind of revenge. Look, Dollar, what's all this got to do with me? That's what I want you to tell me. Look, I don't know anything about any of them. Last year, Nolan was arrested for assault and battery. According to the police records, the man who put up bail for him was you. Okay. Okay, so I put up bail for him. Look, Tom Nolan's my uncle, Dollar. Sure, he's offbeat, but, but he's harmless. Assault and battery? Harmless? So he beat up a guy. That doesn't mean he'd kill anybody. How'd he get mixed up with Benton, Mayfield, and Whiting? Well, he... He, he was broke. I asked Benton's wife to get her husband and the others interested in buying Tom's lease to get him some dough. I didn't know the lease had turned out to be valuable. After Nolan got out of jail, he left town and moved to Coopersville. That's uh, upstate. Yeah? Well, he's had a room right here in the city for the last week. I didn't know that. Believe me, I didn't. Look, I haven't heard from him for six months. That's the truth. Dollar, I've told you all I know. I still didn't trust Santis, but decided to follow up the lead he'd given me about Coopersville. Maybe Tom Nolan had gone back there. I called Tobich to tell him, and he had a nasty little surprise for me. Alvin Whiting had disappeared from his apartment. I didn't know whether Tom Nolan had gotten to Whiting or not, but I did know I had to find Nolan in a hurry. I hightailed it to Coopersville. It was a small town with half a dozen hotels and rooming houses. I made the rounds, flashing Nolan's picture. Finally, I struck pay dirt. Why, yes, I recognize that picture. That's Tom, all right. But he told me his last name was Niles. You say he roamed here, Mrs. Carr? Yes. Kept himself, mostly, but he didn't make no trouble for anybody, as far as I could see. Moved in here about, oh, six months ago. Around the end of September, it was. Then last week, he, he left us. Sure, he probably found out they'd struck oil and moved into the city. You don't understand, Mr. Dollar. When I say he left us, I mean that last week, Tom Niles died. There I was. But all of a sudden, the deal started adding up in my mind. It was after dark when I got to the graveyard, and my flashlight picked out the simple headstone. Tom Niles. Yeah, Tom Nolan. Resting in peace, right where he'd been, all through the murders he was supposed to have committed. The shot knocked the flashlight out of my hand. I hit the dirt, but the flash had pegged the gun for me. Well, well. Alvin Whiting. Oh, Dollar, my arm. Oh, don't worry. I'll get you a doctor, Whiting. I want you to be in good shape, to stand trial. How'd you work it? Hire some drifter to rent that room back in New York under Nolan's name? Some character you picked up in the park? Oh, you've got... You've got to understand. I, I had to have the money. I was in debt. I was desperate. You almost got the money, too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, it almost worked. 
You rigged the story that Nolan was the killer, that you were on his list of victims. That way you end up in sole possession of the oil lease. If I'd only known he was... Yeah. Never try to frame a guy who's already dead. Expense account total $146.50. Remarks? I turned Whiting over to the police and he made a full statement. Yeah, his motive was money. He was in the hole, gambling debts and bills, high cost of living, you might say. But I guess he knows now it's still a real bargain compared to the high cost of dying. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, Dame Nature takes a hand and helps me solve a crime. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Starring Bob Bailey originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Today's story was written by Robert Wright. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Lillian Bayef, Jack Edwards, Jack Moyles, Tony Barrett, Parley Bear, and Carlton G. Young. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverly speaking. The Killer's List Matter. A yours truly Johnny Dollar story from the early spring of 1958 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. At the beginning of the show tonight, I mentioned the Berlin Airlift, Operation Vittles, as the Air Force has called it. A week from tomorrow marks the 70th anniversary of its successful conclusion. And tonight is the anniversary of its subsidiary, I guess you could call it, Operation Little Vittles. More about that in a few minutes. If you're unfamiliar with it, the Berlin Airlift was the American, French, and British response to one of the first great crises of the Cold War. The Soviets had blockaded the three sectors of Berlin that were controlled by those three countries in the hope of taking over all of the former German capital. Some months after the blockade was lifted, CBS newsman Edward R. Murrow remembered it in his documentary recording, I Can Hear It Now, 1945 to 1949. The Cold War had much of the tragedy and all of the logistics of a fighting war. It had its theaters of operations, its fifth columns, its propaganda teams, its D-Days, and it had its sieges. Roger Seal 9, your latest temple off weather is unlimited. Power broken, seven miles, wind northwest at six, all timber setting is three zero zero one, landing is two seven zero. The siege of Berlin began on June 26, 1948, and lasted 328 days. Zero nine, now perform your final cockpit check, get on a lock check and set your jar over. The command decisions were made in Moscow and Washington, but the objective was Berlin, now divided into eastern and western sectors. When the Big Four failed to settle the dispute of Berlin, the Russians, believing the Allied position there to be vulnerable both militarily and economically, clamped a railroad and highway blockade upon its two million inhabitants. For a few hours, our position was untenable. For a day, it was impossible. Then, for 328 days, it was a miracle of air power. The 
American and British forces, operating from bases in Frankfurt and Hamburg, lifted supplies for two million Germans to an island deep within the Soviet zone. A city the size of Philadelphia was supplied for a year, completely by air. Cargo planes, usually C-54s, touched down at Tempelhof Aerodrome every three minutes. A quarter of a million missions in every conceivable kind of weather. Payloads of 18,000 pounds of coal, wheat, milk, and drugs. Well, Roger, do not acknowledge any further instructions. Steer right now to a heading of one direction. Steer right now to a heading of two. In all, five billion pounds of supplies were flown in by Operation Vittles to keep democracy from perishing in a city that had watched it die twice in one generation. There were youngsters. Some of them had been shooting marbles at the time of Munich who flew as many as 400 missions in this battle which may yet prove to be the payoff in the Cold War. Edward R. Murrow may have been quite prescient in that 1949 observation from his Columbia Records LP, I Can Hear It Now, 1945-49. to The Berlin airlift was big news, and it galvanized the country in 1948 and 49. Nearly everybody pitched in, much as they had done during World War II just a few years earlier. Bob Hope went back overseas to entertain the troops, in this case, the Air Force's personnel who were carrying out Operation Vittles. And with him, he brought that most patriotic of American popular songwriters, Irving Berlin, and he contributed a new tune for the occasion. From Berlin, Germany, on Christmas Day 1948, and broadcast here at home three days later over NBC, here's an excerpt from the new Swan Show, starring Bob Hope. Swan Soap, in cooperation with the United States Air Forces, presents the Bob Hope Show from Berlin, Germany. Fellas, there's a great guy who's kept America humming for years. Yes, he was in World War One, and did an even bigger job in World War Two, Mr. Irving Berlin. And Bob, I, I wish you'd do that introduction over again. Why, is there something wrong, Irving? Yes. Yeah. You know, you've got the name wrong. It's Irving Jones. Irving Jones? Yes, I changed it. Anything over here named Berlin, they cut up into sectors. Get serious for a minute, if I may. All, right. All of us are deeply indebted to the Air Force for the job they're doing here on the Berlin Airlift. And by way of showing my appreciation, I've written a special song. Every three minutes of every hour, an American plane goes winging to Berlin, loaded with the food and fuel which keep two and one half million people alive. This is a tremendous job, as we know, and it's called Operation Vittel. <laughs> Not long ago, a group we called the Air Corps helped build the wall and took the bow. Not long ago, we feared the fighting Air Corps. Let's see what's happened to the now. Operation Ripple, we'll soon be on our way. With coal and wheat and hay, and everything's okay. Operation Ripple, as in the air we go. We won't forget the blow of his to Uncle Joe. We're going thunder of the wild blue yonder, making the buck 
Flying a truck, no one here can remove the job that must be won. Although the war was won, we will and bars in our old great cars till the airlift lifts you Irving Berlin, or Irving Jones, as he joked, in his musical tribute to the Berlin airlift, Operation Vittles, on the Bob Hope Show, also known as the New Swan Show for its sponsor, Swan Soap, the broadcast originating from Germany, Christmas week of 1948. This month marks the 70th anniversary of the end of the Berlin airlift, and tonight marks the 71st anniversary of the official start of Operation Little Vittles. That happened when an Air Force's pilot, Gail Halverson, noticed that there was a bunch of little kids hanging around the runways at Tempelhof Airdrome watching the planes land and take off. So he figured out a way of attaching handkerchiefs to his candy rations, and those mini parachutes delivered candy to the kids. Soon some of his buddies were sharing their candy rations, and pretty quickly, more kids showed up. Colonel Halverson would wiggle his wings every time he flew to Berlin so they'd know it was he. The general in charge of the airlift made it an official Air Force's operation, and 71 years ago tonight, Operation Little Vittles was born. Our thanks to Colonel Halverson, who's still very much with us at age 98. And for photos and much more about him and Operation Little Vittles, go to our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. We're thankful to David Tillotson and Brett Stoley of the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force near my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, for providing us with some of those materials. A couple of years before the Berlin airlift, Americans, too, were dealing with shortages, but they were trivial annoyances compared to the deprivations in Europe. Still, they were significant enough to provide material for radio comedians, and there were jokes about the post-war shortages of meat, automobiles, and housing on the very first installment of the Henry Morgan Show on the relatively new ABC radio network about a year after the end of the war. We're about to hear that show and get a good dose of the sardonic humor of Mr. Morgan, whose irreverent wit made him clash with sponsors and network executives throughout his career. Maybe not so much as his friend and admirer, Fred Allen, but plenty. Like Mr. Allen, Henry Morgan reveled in topical references, and you'll hear a good many now-unfamiliar names in this show. The radio gossip columnist Jimmy Fiddler, the fast-talking auctioneers L.A. Speed Riggs and F.E. Boone, who was known as the Tobacco Leaf Caruso, the Lone Ranger and his horse Silver, the sportscaster Harry Wismer, the radio adventure hero Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, 
the vocalist Alma Kitchell, the singing group The Ink Spots, the famous graffito Kilroy was here, the child star Margaret O'Brien, and the New York City Democratic political machine Tammany Hall. From September 3rd, 1946, and ABC, it's the then brand new Henry Morgan Show. Sounds like the American Broadcasting Company just had a new program. Good evening, anybody. Here's Morgan. ABC presents Henry Morgan in a program featuring Susie Dussault, Charlie Irving, Bernard Green and his orchestra, and a few surprises. And now, ladies and gentlemen... The star of our show, America's number one funny man, Bob Hope. This is Henry Morgan. The reason the announcer said Bob Hope was we figured we'd get, well, 12 million more listeners. If you tune out now, kids, you're just a sore loser. Now, about this show, I'll tell you the truth. The American Broadcasting Company was suddenly stuck with 30 minutes of dead air. They had all this time, see, with nothing in it. Now, where this 30 minutes came from is quite a fantastic story. Some say that the guy who comes in here in the morning and opens the station for the day arrived one morning when his watch was a half hour fast. And he started broadcasting a half hour too soon, see... And by evening, here was this empty half hour sticking out. <laughs> of course, the executive responsible for this was dealt with. Before they fired him, they made him turn in his ulcer. <laughs> and then uh, they flogged him with a wet Jimmy Fiddler script. <laughs> anyway, they were stuck with his time. One vice president suggested that they get the public library to sponsor 30 minutes of silence. <laughs> they were going to call it Program to Read By. <laughs> well, the library turned it down because they said they weren't getting a full 30 minutes of silence because of the opening. The announcer said, then somebody else suggested that we do a half hour of tobacco auctioneering. Split the time, he said, between L.A. Speed Rigs of Goldsboro, North Carolina, and F.E. Boone of Lexington, Kentucky. <laughs> or, it was difficult, though. The trouble was we couldn't find a writer to write that stuff. <laughs> anyway, somebody suggested that, a, well, if you can't get a new type program for the free time, why not have one of the shows that's already on the network do the same thing twice? And they asked the Lone Ranger if he'd take over the time. But he said, no, this is the night that Silver listens to the radio. <laughs> You'd be surprised, kids. Everybody has turned this half hour down. Harry Wismer... Jack Armstrong, Alma Kitchell, until he came to me. Oh, it's not that I needed the job, but they made me such a good offer. They told me, the executives did, that if I do this show, I get, one, an autographed picture of Chiquita Banana. 
<laughs> True, a season passed to Grant's tomb. <laughs> and three, a rubber stocking. <laughs> which I don't need. Then we had the problem of giving this program a name. It's very difficult. You think this is easy? We were going to call it the Jack Benny Show, but we found out somebody was using that. We had to... Oh, pardon me. Come in. Mr. Benny? Uh, no, I said we were going to call it that. Now, this show <laughs> will be... That was terribly amusing when we did it the first time. <laughs> this show will be divided into two parts. An opening and a closing. And I, of course, am in the middle. Now, everything that happens from now on will be a public service. As a public service, we present... Great sayings of unfamiliar men. Friends, many things were said last week that you may not have heard. Who said it or where it was said isn't important. But what is really unimportant is what was said. Presenting the quotation of the week. Mm, yeah, but that. <laughs> now for the music part. We were going to have the ink spots. We were going to have the ink spots, but you know the fellow who says. Do I worry? He was too worried to come tonight. <laughs> so instead, we have Ross Gorman. commercial announcement would go if I were foolish enough to sell this valuable program. <laughs> but I won't. It's uh, monotonous, selling the same product for the same sponsor week after week. My way, I can sell anything I like. And tonight, I feel like selling cigarettes. Have you tried Morgan cigarettes? Only taste will test. So why not try the taste test? Simply take a package of Morgan cigarettes and remove the paper from each cigarette. <laughs> pour the tobacco into a bowl. Now, taste it. Makes you sick, doesn't it? <laughs> you see, ladies and gentlemen, you simply can't go around tasting cigarettes. You've got to smoke them. Here's what Mr. Snagwaris of Hollywood, California has to say. <laughs> Mr. Waris... You're a regular smoker of Morgan cigarettes? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> well, now, uh, after you've smoked a pack of our brand, is your cough better or worse? <laughs> better. Much better. 
Yes, the British Broadcasting System may have commercial programs someday and probably will have sponsored broadcasts of baseball games. Our troops left them with some knowledge of the game. We're about to take you now to London, England for an imaginary baseball broadcast. We hope you will forgive the announcer, Mr. Morgan, if he seems a bit unfamiliar with some of the terminology. Take it away, London! This is Googie Morgan, bringing you the final inning of today's contest between Frothingham and Twickenham in a broadcast sponsored by the makers of Empire Carbonated Water. Empire Carbonated Water contains double the bubbles, you know. <laughs> I dare say we have proof positive of this. <laughs> Bubble the bubbles. Oh, yes. It's been a lovely afternoon. The fog having lifted twice for a sum total of 17 minutes. At present, the scoreboard reads, and doubtless writes too. <laughs> Sorry. The scoreboard reads, Quickenham nothing, Frothingham zero. The next player is to be Mr. Egbert Toad. Mr. Toad is native to East Cluttingshire and stands ten stones and drinks three oxids. <laughs> As he stands at the basin, eh? Oh, oh, thank you. As he stands at the plate, <laughs> his manner, his manner is quite assured. Mr. Frussell, the bowler, eh? Oh, oh, thank you. The pitcher. He's about to pitch. Oh, yes, that is. Mr. Toad stands perfectly still, and I'm afraid he's misjudged. <laughs> that would be one strike, I imagine. Uh, here, here's the following attempt by the pitcher. Mr. Toad thrusts mightily. Made quite an admirable contact. This uh, may well win the game, you know. The ball is quite high in the air. <laughs> Several players are making for it. You know, this Toad fellow reminds me that some seasons ago I had the good fortune to spend a fortnight or so in East Cluttingshire. <laughs> Never met the Toad, of course, though I did encounter a rather interesting old gentleman by the name of uh, Viridant or Gibney or something. <laughs> Fascinating fellow. Seemed to have spent the major part of his time in India, though he'd been elsewhere. I... Tanganyika, I think he'd been there. Straight settlements, yes, he'd been there. <laughs> I do believe he'd even been to the States back in 19... Uh, well, somewhere around there. Had this daughter, you see. She'd become confused with some chap from Cape Town, according to what the old chap told me. Fellow, um... Fellow enlisted to joined the Royal Fusiliers. <laughs> was injured too. Got knocked about a bit by the premature explosion of a fusil. <laughs> never, never, never saw him again. The old gentleman, I mean. Well, let's see. That uh, Toad fellow appears to have run quite around the field. <laughs> Won the game, I imagine. <laughs> However, there's to be another contest tomorrow. Or 
Friday, I think. Uh, perhaps you'd best check on it. Uh, this broadcast was sponsored by Empire Carbonated Water Company. Double the bubbles, you know. Cheerio. <laughs> No doubt you've heard the expression, New York's a great place to visit, but I wouldn't live there if they gave me the place. In the year 2000, on a Wednesday, <laughs> a man named Sullivan opened a meat market in Patterson, New Jersey, just a few miles from New York City. He had meat, and word got around fast. By Thursday morning, the exodus had started. By Friday night, there wasn't a soul left in Manhattan. The city was empty. Trolley cars stood dead in their tracks. Vegetable dinners grew cold in the restaurants. <laughs> and the people? Well, once outside of New York, they realized they'd never liked it there in the first place. And they just didn't come back. Some went further west, to Newark. <laughs> Others became good humor men on the Lincoln Highway. New York became a dead and silent city, like Carthage, Pompeii, Philadelphia. <laughs> For a thousand years, nothing is heard of New York. In January of the year 3000, a rumor reaches Professor Trigg at Buzzkirk University in Cleveland. Trigg, a god with the news, rushes to one of his colleagues. Professor Morganhoff! Professor Morganhoff. Yes, Craig? A report just came to my desk that a herd of animals has been sighted from the air over ancient Manhattan. Animals? Uh, yes, Swinus vulgaris. Uh, pigs, that is. Oh, yes. I thought they were extinct. Extraordinary, Craig. I will form an expedition immediately. Just between us, Craig. These food pills we live on are awful. We start at once. Five minutes later... A rocket ship sets the expedition down in ancient Manhattan. <laughs> We've landed. Here we are, gentlemen. New York City, just as it was when it was abandoned a thousand years ago. Look, Professor Morgan Hall. Those two signs. One says Broadway, the other says 42. And look at those vehicles piled on top of one another. Hmm. Must have been an intersection in the old days, yes. Uh, McGreevy? Yes, Professor? Uh, McGreevy, uh, why don't you take this road to the east and keep your eyes open? If you see anything, report to me on your wrist radio. Right, sir. Yes. <laughs> Fine boy, that McGreevy. Love that boy, McGreevy. Uh, this is odd, sir. Poles with red and green lights on them. Poles with red and green lights? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, those were traffic signals in the old days. They were used in a game played with automobiles called Beat the Light. <laughs> oh, that's a McGreevy signaling on his radio. Yes, McGreevy? I found a bottle with a note in it. What do you make of that, love? I'll read that again. <laughs> I don't mind if you do. Go ahead. What do you make of that, Morgan Hall? Much better. Well, <laughs> years ago, uh, sailors in distress put notes in bottles and tossed them overboard. Uh, what does this note say, uh, McGreevy? It says, Leave two cuts milk, one pit cream. 
Bond's report. Report on anything else you see. Fine boy, that McGreevy. Lovely boy. See, this looks interesting. The sign over the door says drugs and soda. Brother, I was cotton soda with your What's in this uh, little booth here with the glass door? Well, I think that was called telephone, Professor. Uh, put that piece next to your ear. This piece here? Put it next to your ear. All right, yes. I'm still trying to get your party. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Uh, Craig, what are you doing over there? Uh, it's a little room hung on cable. Room hung on cables? Oh, yes, that's an elevator, Craig. Back in 1946, you could ride in an elevator for nothing. By 1947, they didn't go up and down anymore, and you had to pay $8 a night to sleep in them. That's <laughs> uh, McGreevy again. That's McGreevy. Yes, McGreevy. Uh, every place I go, I find an inscription. It's all over the wall. What's it say? It says, Kilroy was here. <laughs> fine lad, that McGreevy. A very fine lad, McGreevy, yes. Well, Professor, look at that huge sign over there. Huge sign. Oh, yes, it says... Terrific, colossal, gigantic, stupendous. Must have had tremendous beasts in those days. Yeah, and underneath it says, Margaret O'Brien starts tomorrow. Uh, Professor Morganhoff. Shall we throw that joke to the lions? <laughs> oh, McGreevy, you're back, eh? Yes. yes, did you find the pig? Uh, no, sir, but I did find this old newspaper. An old newspaper. Oh, yes, look at this headline. It says, Dodgers win series. What's the date on that? Uh, 1985. <laughs> right underneath there, it says, Autos promised for next spring. <laughs> well, Professor, what shall I say in our report to the university? Oh, just say, New York is a wonderful place to visit, but I wouldn't live there if they came in a place. <laughs> We present the first in a descriptive series about people who give advice, entitled, Help. <laughs> I'm walking down the street looking for a certain address. Uh, pardon me, mister. Uh, do you happen to know where 675 Sunrise Road is? Funny thing, I'm going there myself. Oh, swell. Where is it? I don't know. Let's ask somebody. <laughs> so I lose this character and I ask somebody else. A lady, do you know where 675 Sunrise Road is? Well, it's about three blocks down the street. Turn right at the gas station and, um... Well, hello. So I lose that character after two or three hours. And I ask somebody else. Uh, pardon me, sir, but do you know where 675 Sunrise Road is? Yes. Well, is it around here? Yes. Can you tell me how to get there? Yes. Do you mind telling me? Yes. You don't want to tell me. What are you standing here for? He asked me what I'm standing here for. Oh! Come, Rover. Oh, I don't think it deserves applause. So next, maybe it does. Well, we'll never know. So next, I bump into a little old man who looks like he was in New York when they bought the place. 
He should be. He ought to know. Well, pardon me, sir. Can you tell me where 675 Sunrise Road is? Tell you anything you want to know. Speak up, young fella. Well, can you tell me... No, this city like the back of my hand. Was born here. How old would you say I was, young fella? Well, 85? Yeah, 92. Don't look at the eyes. No, you look more like 85. Uh, <laughs> tell me, do you happen to know... I used to swim in Central Park Lake every morning until I was 83. They made me stop. Who? Family Hall. My name's Jeremiah Chris. Jeremiah after the prophet Chris, after my father. Uh, what do you want, young fella? Oh, it's not important. I, I was looking for a house. I'm a Republican, young fella. Don't look it, do I? No, you don't look a day over 85. <laughs> Why not? Runs through the ground. Got to get dirty. Logical. What kind of water do you drink? Rainwater. I'm healthy as a cow. Cow's got six lives. Oh, no. A cow doesn't have six lives. Huh? Got six or something. I know that. <laughs> you know what the cleanest animals are? The cleanest animals? No. What? Pigs. I never seen a pig expectorate. <laughs> what's, uh, what's troubling you, young fellow? You look fidgety. I was just in a hurry to get somewhere, but it doesn't matter. Know what the trouble with the country's economy is, young fella? Uh, high prices? Nope, just then. Gee, I don't know. Too many swamps. I lived in a swamp for ten years, then had to move away. They built a city on it. What city? Philadelphia. <laughs> I uh, remember what young Martin Van Buren used to say, paint clean and live in the mountains. Deep thinker, that boy. Yeah, must have been. Well, do you happen to know... The where... railroad's done it. They've done what? Railroads filled the air with smoke. We're all breathing railroad air, not American air. How old would you say I was? Oh, about 92? Yeah, 85. <laughs> so long, young fella. And remember, keep your feet on the ground and your nose to the grindstone and your eye on the politicians. Jeremiah Chris said it. Well, I'm glad I've met you. Thank you. The shadows of dust are slowly lengthening over the great metropolis. The lights of the city are twinkling on one by one. It's very picturesque. And I'm still looking for 675 Sunrise Road. I see a charming-looking couple sitting close together on a park bench. Excuse me, folks. Can you tell me where 675 Sunrise Road is? Well, of course. It's two blocks down and turn to the right. You mean to the left, darling. Oh, no, dear. I'm sure it's to the right. Uh, never mind. I'll find it myself. You see, dear, you're confusing the man. I'm confusing. Now, if you hadn't said anything, darling... I, I was just telling you. Why do you talk about something you know nothing about? Well, you're the one who doesn't know. If you don't know, why do you... Who said I don't know? I used to work right next door. You work? You haven't worked in ten years. Well, if you don't mind... You I... stay right here. Look, you go down two you blocks. You suck. I suppose you were in such a blind stupor you forgot last Saturday night. You were so drunk you went around kissing every woman in the room. Ha, ha, ha. Except you didn't kiss me. I wasn't that drunk. <laughs> Well, thanks for trying, folks. I'll manage I hate you. I hated you the day I married then you. Then why did you marry me? Because you were a pest. You were born a pest and you'll die a pest. Gee, it's well of you folks to try to help out. Uh, I'll take a cab. Wait a minute. I'll go with you. You're, you're going my way? Going your way. I'm going to live with you. So, finally, I gave up and hailed a cab. A uh, taxi. 675 Sunrise Road, please. Okay, 675 Sunrise Road. Yes. How do you get there?
don't know what radio's coming to, but I know where it's been. <laughs> People are asking more questions today than ever before. We have to stretch a little. I think we're going to be a little short. People are asking more questions today than ever before. And they're getting fewer answers. Now, in an effort to alleviate this serious shortage of answers, we you bring you... a lot of time with Yes. Uh, in an effort to alleviate this serious shortage of answers, it's going to get pretty dull. Do well can alleviate? Uh, yes. And one B. The eyes. Uh, we bring you the fellow who knows everything. Everything, that is. Radio's famous question man. Now, if you have a question you'd like answered, I'll repeat that. If you have a question you would like answered, send it in. Now, the question man. Good evening. Our first question, sir, comes from Mrs. R.K. of Newark, who asks, Are hockey pucks edible? <laughs> yes. Hockey pucks are edible and are pronounced delicious by epicures. When a hockey puck is boiled with greens, the greens become soggy and are pronounced soggy by epicures. <laughs> Mr. M.B. of Scranton asks, Who played second base for the Baltimore Orioles in 1902? This position was held down by the first baseman. <laughs> Mr. M.B. of Scranton asks, Well, in that case, who played first base? <laughs> the Mill on the Floss was written by George Eliot. <laughs> our, our next question. George Eliot asks, by the term Postman's Holiday, and how did the expression originate? The term Postman's Holiday refers to a holiday taken by a postman. <laughs> it is not known how the expression originated. <laughs> Mr. Casey of Topeka writes, I often hear people say, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Is this true? Yes. Send for my free booklet, 89 Ways to Skin a Cat. <laughs> Mrs. R.D. of Atlanta wants to know, do some foods contain more calories than others? No. Some foods contain less calories than others. <laughs> Mr. B.P. of Fresno says, my friends all submit questions to the question man. I am made sport of. Because I cannot think of any questions. Can you help me? Yes, I can. Send for my free booklet, Questions Suitable for Submitting to the Question Man. <laughs> if you have a question, send it to the Question Man. Are we still short, Charlie? Or we, uh, on the nose. And keep going. If you have a question, send it to the Question Man. Enclose $5 to cover the cost of living. <laughs> and be sure to tune in next week because... Morgan will be on the same corner in front of the cigar store next Wednesday at the same time. The Henry Morgan Show from the beginning of September in 1946. 
It came to you from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. We learned earlier this month of the passing of Toby Schreiner, one of the pillars of the big broadcast for 25 years. Toby went beyond the duties of an audio engineer, and it's not too much to say that he made it possible for our friend Ed Walker to bring you this show every Sunday night. Toby was so helpful in giving us our start on this show three years ago, and on behalf of all of our listeners, we send condolences to his family and friends. Donations in his name are being accepted at the Kennedy Forum thekennedyforum.org. You may want to pay particularly close attention to Gunsmoke tonight. It features a very emotional performance by William Conrad as Matt Dillon, and it's a favorite episode of quite a few fans. It's called The Roundup, and it comes from February 14, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Dodge City entered the territory on west. There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Heavy, Matt? Oh, somehow it was easier carrying him up to your office and back down, Doc. Where are you going to put me, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, well, on the couch here, I guess. Uh, uh, you be all right there, Chester? Oh, yes, it is. It'll be fine. Good. I'm sure sorry I'm so much trouble. Chester, next time, try to land on just one foot. Even if you break a leg. I know. A man's in a terrible fix when he sprains both ankles. Oh, he sure is, Doc. I don't know what I'm going to do. I know what you're going to do. You're going to stay right there on that couch, and you're going to sleep there, too. Maybe Doc and I'll bring you in something to eat every day or two. Oh, no. It's better than you deserve. I know. I've been saying over and over to myself, Chester, you fool, you. Well... The wages of sin, Chester. <laughs> you were lucky to get off as easy as you did. The way I heard it. Uh, come on, Chester. Tell us what really happened, huh? <laughs> but I did tell you. I was uh, looking out this second-story window, admiring the view, so to speak. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I fell. That's all right onto the street. He didn't say whose window, Chester. In Texas, Doctor, a gentleman don't mention such things. You ain't in Texas, Sometimes we should never laugh. <laughs> like now? Yes, like now. 
Many a reputation's been ruined by just such loose talk that you're making, Doc. Never mind, Doc Chester. He's jealous, that's all. Oh, jealous? Uh, putting tracks in a man's yard? <laughs> Not me. Not by a long side. Why, no, sir. Oh. Good morning, Marshal. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. What can I do for you, gentlemen? Oh, there's Chester. <laughs> heard about you, Chester. I heard... Never you... mind what you heard, Torp. Chester just got thrown from a horse, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all on. right. What is it you want here, gentlemen? Yeah. All right, you tell him, Summers. Well, Marshal, it's about tomorrow night. Oh? So what about tomorrow night? Well, you know, it's the roundup. Uh, sales season's over. There'll be a thousand cowboys celebrating in Dodge. Well, they always do at the end of the season. What about it? Well, there's going to be more of them this year, and there'll be a lot of homesteaders in town, too. It's going to be worse than ever. Well, I expect that. There could be a lot of trouble, Marshal. <laughs> yeah, there could be, Summers. Just what is it you want? Well, we've talked it over, and uh, we want you to get a lot of good, tough men together, maybe about uh, 20 of them, and deputize them. That way, there won't be any trouble. Yeah. That's what you want, is it? Yes, we do. Look, Summers, my job's to keep the peace around here, and I'm going to do it, but I'll do it in my own way. Oh, I know, Marshal. Now, you but... turn 20 deputies loose in that crowd looking for trouble, and they're going to find it. As soon as the wild ones heard about it, they'd bunch up and shoot it out with every one of them. Why, it'd turn into the worst slaughter dodge you've ever seen. I think that's about the most fool idea I ever heard of. Yeah, no reason for you to talk like that, Marshal. I think it's a good idea. I sure don't want my place wrecked just because you're mule-headed. You're a gambler, Torp. So? So you can take your chances along with everybody else. Now, if you don't want that, then close your place up tomorrow night. What, lose all that Texas money? <laughs> That's not likely. Now, we're not all gamblers, Marshal. They can wreck my dry goods store just as fast as a gambling house once they get started. And it's up to you. That's right. It is up to me. And we're going to leave it that way. Hmm. Then uh, you won't do anything. I'll do everything I can. I don't know, Marshal. Look, Summers, I know you've got your doubts about me. That's natural. Some people think I'm too lax with front street. Some think I'm too severe. But that's the way of it in any town. If a peace officer does his job well, he pleases nobody. Marshal, we didn't come here for a lecture. What did you come for, Torp? Maybe you had in mind to help me pick out those deputies. Is that it? A matter of fact, I could, Marshal. Yeah, sure, sure. In a couple of hours, yours would be the only tables open for play. No, that's not what it's I... It's been had. done before, Torp. Is that too, Torp? We're well, not going to take his word for anything, are you? I don't know. But anyway, he won't listen to us, so it's his responsibility. Come on, men, let's get out of here. I hope you can handle it, Marshal. Goodbye, gentlemen. That Torp is no good. He is just plain no good, Miss Dillon. Well, now, I know one man that got skinned at his place, and Torp gave him back $20 so he wouldn't be broke. Oh? Uh, just how much did this man lose, Doc? Oh, five or six hundred, they said. And then he... Uh... Oh, yeah, I see what you mean, man. I'm sure not going to be much good to you tomorrow night, Mr. Dillon. Uh, you can watch the jail right here, Chester. I know, but you just got to get somebody to help you out on the street. 
At least one man, anyway. You can't be everywhere at once. Yeah, but tomorrow night, Dodge will be overrun with trail boys and homesteaders, all looking for satisfaction. No, I wouldn't ask any man to face that. I know a few fellows who'd do it, and so do you, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, maybe. But I wouldn't ask anybody. How many were killed last year, man? I don't remember, Well, I do. Six, that's what. We bury them all in the saddle blankets. All except one. I remember he didn't even own a blanket. (laughs) Well, then he was sure out of luck all the way around, wasn't he? Come on, Doc. Let's go get some dinner. All right. We'll bring you a piece of bread, Chester. Maybe. I want a steak. Rare. (laughs) How come you're so hungry, Chester? Were you in such a hurry to get over there last night you didn't take time for supper? Mr. Dillon, I will answer no more questions about last night, and that is final. (laughs) Well, we'll bring you something. Yeah, I don't know if we should, though, Matt. A man can think about his sins better on an empty stomach. Close the door, will you? The next morning, I had Mr. Hightower print up some signs for me with a few rules that I made up for the roundup. They were fair and reasonable, and I hoped they'd be accepted without question. The principal restrictions were that there was to be no shooting and no reckless riding in the streets. That afternoon, I went from saloon to saloon and left a sign at each one. The Texas Trail was my last stop. And there I sat down with Kitty for a short beer. Town's beginning to fill up, Matt. Yeah, it'll be swamped to the dashboard by dark. You, um, expect trouble tonight? <laughs> I always expect trouble, Kitty. Yeah, I know. Matt, I heard something. Yeah? I heard Torp and a few of his men cut cards last night. So? I don't know who it came out for, but... Low man is supposed to kill you. Oh. When? Tonight, I suppose. Why is Torp after you, Matt? Uh, Torp says he wants an open town, Kitty. But what he's really after is somebody who'll close down every game but his. Oh. Who's this, man? What? Rough-looking traveler headed this way. What? Well, I'll be. Why, it's Zell Matlock. Zell! You old badger. How are you? Zell, it's been a long time. A long time. Here, come on over here. Sit down. Sure. Uh, I'd like for you to meet Kitty. Kitty, this is Zell Matlock. This is Kitty. Glad to know you, ma'am. Just rode into Dodge an hour ago. It's your first time in the Zell. Hey, would you like a beer, huh? Don't mind. Good. I uh, aim to get drunk tonight, but before I got started, I thought I'd look up the peace officer and shoot him. I'd be sure to tangle with him before the night's out. I always figure it's safer to do it sober. So <laughs> he, he half means that, kid. So I asked around and found out the man's name is Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. I've seen it all now. Well, I hope you're not disappointed. I'll, so. I'll tell you, Miss Kitty, I knew Matt Dillon before he got civilized. Why, we had to tie his leg up to give him a haircut when he came to town. <laughs> Don't you believe a word that he says, Kitty? Yeah, the wilder the coat, the better the horse, Matt. Mm-hmm. But you was all right. The only trouble with you was that fool honest streak you always had. <laughs> Are you rich now, Zell? Ah, nobody's rich on the Mexican border. Land of sunshine and pinna beans. 
I hired out to a general over in Chihuahua three years ago. I lost 20 pounds and was lucky to get back at all. Well, haven't you learned to stay out of Mexico yet? No, I met the man he wanted me to shoot and turned out to be a better fellow than the general. So I told him I'd been hired to kill him and then rode for the border. The general lost three soldiers who tried to stop me from swimming the Rio Bravo. Uh, you must be pretty handy with a gun, though. Yeah, just fair, ma'am. But when I take my gun out, I go right ahead and use it. Some people stop and think for half a second. Um, there's a roundup in Dodge tonight. Matt's handling it alone. Kitty, what the... Yeah, no, no, hold it, hold it, man. I heard about it. I heard all about it, and that's why I'm here. To say hello... And uh, sign on for a night's pleasure. Give me a star, Matt. I've killed on the side of the law before. <laughs> I don't believe that. And anyway, I I don't want any killings here. No, I was joshing you, Matt. I know what you want. It's true. I was sheriff in Tascosa for six months. You what? Yeah, it's in the record. Well, they caught up with me there, but I'd already done such a good job taming the place that the governor pardoned me. <laughs> I won't kill anybody tonight that don't need killing. All right, all right, I believe you so. But uh, I won't ask any man to come in when it's as rough as this roundup may be. Well, you didn't ask me. Any other objection? Well, uh, the men don't know you around here, so no telling how they'd take to a stranger. First night I ran Tascosa, nobody knew me either. I'm not green at this business. Yeah, but it's Matt. my job. Why should you get mixed up in it? <clears throat> well, I... I also heard somebody's planning a party for you tonight. Oh, you did, huh? I've owed you something for a long time, Matt. Oh, that's got nothing to do with it. It has. You got no right not let me pay it back a little. Now there's a chance to. <laughs> yeah, you're just as crazy as you ever were. <laughs> That's better. Well, come on, let's go find me a badge before it gets dark. Sure, nice to have met you, Miss Kitty. Well, good luck, Zell. I'll see you later, Matt. Yeah, sure. So long, Kitty. Sure been a long time coming to Dodge, Mr. Matlock. What do you mean, Chester? Well, I've heard Mr. Dillon mention you a lot, but the way he talked, I wasn't never sure you were still alive. <laughs> oh, well, I was never sure either, Chester. You know, Zell isn't the most cautious man I ever knew. Yeah, you think being a U.S. Marshal isn't asking for an early grave, man? Oh, maybe. But at least it's a way to do some good before you die, whether folks think so or not. Oh, men like Torp, that's all. Oh, no, Chester, even good men have got a strange twist that makes them suspect any man paid to handle the bad element. Hey, you just can't help thinking that some of its dirt is rubbed off on him. And I never thought about that before, Matt. Sure how it was in Tascosa. They wanted me there, all right, but they wanted me to keep my distance, too. It makes a man kind of lonely. Yeah. They just don't know what's good for them, that's all. Yeah. Instead of a real lawman, they'd rather hire some killer with a lot of notches carved on his gun. Well, there are plenty of them around. You sure are. Bragging kind. I never did like a man who has to notch his gun to keep his courage up. Yeah. My goodness. Look yonder. Hmm? The street's about full already and it isn't even dark yet. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, give yeah. me a hand here, will you? We'll move Chester's couch away from the window. Oh, all right. Okay. There, that should do it. 
Yeah, you'll be safer here, Chester, in case somebody gets it in mind to shoot up the jail. Thanks, Mr. Dillon. I can watch both doors from here. Uh, just hand me my gun belt, if you will. Oh, yeah. There you are. Well, come on, Sal. Uh, Chester, I'll get somebody at the Dodge House to fetch up some supper, huh? Thank you, sir. And and good luck, both of you. So long. Nice to see you, Chester. Well, how are we working, Matt? Uh, I'll tell you, Sal, you take this uh, side of the street. Uh, I'm going up to the Dodge House, and then I'll be on the other side somewhere. All right. Oh, say, you mind if I go back later and get that Spencer carbine of yours? Make a mighty handy club if I don't have to use it any other way. <laughs> sure, it's yours. Who they got there? That fella on their shoulders. Oh, that's Mr. Hightower. He runs the printing press here. Shall, shall we stop it? Oh, no, no. They're just carrying him into the Longhorn to make him stand some drinks. Oh, they like Hightower. They won't hurt him. Well, I guess that sort of officially opens this here roundup, huh? Yeah, I guess it does. Well, I'll leave you here, Zell. Yeah, sure. Sure, man. And, uh, Zell, I, uh... <laughs> I want to thank you for what you're doing tonight. Ah, I ain't done nothing yet. But I'll do plenty if someone shoots you in the back. <laughs> I can promise that. Yeah. Well, I'll see you later. Sure, Matt. <laughs> return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, Sunday nights, you are cordially invited to escape via CBS Radio. Yes, every weekend for drama that will take you right out of this world, listen for Escape at the Star's Address. Also, tomorrow evening, CBS Radio brings you Lionel Barrymore on your Sunday night playhouse. Now, for the second act of Gunsmoke. I came out of the Dodge House, Front Street was so full that if anybody had been shot, the crowd would have carried him along like one of the living. I had a feeling that the word was out about Torp and his bunch cutting cards to see who would make a try for me. And that the crowd knew it and was waiting for it. I stood for a while with my back against Summer's dry goods store. Then I left the street and cut down an alley thinking to change my position with as much irregularity as possible. I was passing the back door of the Texas Trail when I heard the first shot of the night. I entered the saloon from the rear and made my way into the crowd. It's all right, Marshal. There's no fight. It's not all right, Sam. I made a rule that there'd be no shooting for any reason. All right. Who fired that shot? Oh, it's outside. It was Torque, Marshal. He, he just took a shot at the moon, that's all. Yeah. All right, Torp. Put the gun away and come over here. I'm bothering nobody, Marshal, excepting maybe you. Stand back, everybody. I said that's enough, Torp. No, it ain't, Dylan. This time I got the jump on you. You ain't pushing me no more. Torp's bullet just grazed my arm. 
Then I put one in his head and another in his chest. And at the same time, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a figure with a gun in each hand move out of the shadow of the alley and turn toward me on the boardwalk. And without really looking, I dropped him with one shot. And then I faced the crowd and waited for the next move. But for some reason, none came. Marshal? Yes, Summers. That uh, man you just shot, Marshal. Torp got what he deserved. Yes, I know. It's the other one that I... So did he. Marshal, you'd better go take a look at that man. He's dying. Who is he? I don't know him, Marshal. But you do. What? He's wearing a star. No. No. Oh, Zell. Zell. Man. I think that did it. No, Zell. No. It's my fault. I crossed the street a while back. Left the carbine with Chester. It's no fault of yours. Matt? That old, who they, uh, old man. Uh, uh, how, how is he? Oh, oh, goodness. No use, Doc. Thanks. Sal, I... I now, listen. Listen to me, Matt. You did right. The only thing you could do. It was my fault. I shouldn't have crossed over and come up behind you. Anyway, Matt, I ain't been living on my own time ever since that day you pulled me out of the mob in Almogordo. I never thanked you for that. I guess I never will. Now, Matt, so long. Well, I'll find someone to carry him over to your office, Matt. No. I'll carry him. I heard the shooting. Put a blanket on the floor there, Doc. Yeah, sure. Yeah, spread it. I'll try. Yeah. He's dead, Chester. Well, who shot him, sir? I shot him, Chester. I didn't know it was him. I'm sorry, Mr. Dillon. It sounds like they're going to cool out of the town after all, Matt. Sure does. No. No, they're not. It's going to be kind of hard to stop now, isn't it, Matt? Maybe. You taking a shotgun, Mr. Dillon? Matt, why don't you just let them fight each other? What are you going to do? I'm going to close Front Street. You're going to close... Oh, no, what? The party's over in Dodge. Mr. Dillon, you can't do that. There'll be trouble if I don't. The mob's tasted blood now. They'll shoot you sure as I'm laying here. Will they? All right, I can't stop you, but I sure do wish I could go with you. Yeah, Matt, I'll go. Maybe if they see me, they won't be so quick. Thanks, but this isn't your job, either one of you, but thanks.
buzz up and turn out your lights. What? You heard me! Now listen to me! Broad Street's closed! Now get out of here and go home, all of you! My home is in Texas, mister. If you ever had one. I ain't going home tonight. Not tonight, I ain't. Don't interfere, fella. You got no chips in this deal. I could buy in, mister. Now I'll use this shotgun for what it was meant on the next man. Well? All right, Sam, close it up. Yes, sir. Closed. Put out your lights. Huh? You heard me. Lock the place up. I know. I ain't going to do it. Now, don't tell me what you're going to do. Uh, all right, boys. We're closing up. That took care of the Texas Trail and the Longhorn. And I moved on through the Oasis and the Olifraganza. And then to the smaller bars that infested the outskirts of town. When I came back up Front Street, the crowd had thinned. Its fever broken. I'd left Torp's place for the last. Thinking to give his men a chance to get out of town before they faced me. It was a gambling hall on the same side of the street as the jail. And when I reached it and entered, there weren't more than a dozen men there. And most of them stepped quietly past me out into the street. What was left didn't seem to count for much. Looking for somebody, Marshal? You a friend of Torp's? Well, yes, I was. Why? Who else here worked for Torp? Everyone's gone, Marshal. They heard you were all riled up and they left. Then you're alone. And still in bad company. I wouldn't ordinarily take that. Well, go ahead, mister. You're calling it. No. Not now. What's stopping you? No, if it's the shotgun... Now, does that make it easier for you? I haven't been looking for you, Marshal. You were in on the cut, weren't you? Corp's dead, Marshal. Isn't that enough? Corp! Mister, one of the best men I ever knew died tonight. And I killed him. I'm not a gunman, Marshal. You wouldn't be proud killing me. What does a man like you know about pride? Now, you get out of Dodge and you get out fast. But I don't... You want to die in this place right now? No. No, I'm leaving. All right, hurry. of the night, I walked the dark, empty street alone. And just before dawn, I got a spring wagon and loaded Zell onto it. A couple of hours later, I buried him out of the Arkansas in a little grove of cottonwoods. Maybe I should have put a marker on his grave. 
but I didn't. What I did instead, I did partly out of scorn for the kind of men Zell said have to notch their guns to keep their courage up. And partly as a kind of a cross that I bear from now on. So instead of a marker on his grave, I took out my gun. And I cut a single notch on it. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner and Harry Bartell, with Lawrence Dobkin, Lou Krugman, and James Nusser. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Listen to CBS Radio for Spring Byington as December Bride. And say, after you hear December Bride tomorrow night, listen for the important announcement about its new night and time on CBS Radio. This is Roy Rowan speaking. And remember, Amos and Andy are here every Sunday on the CBS Radio Network. Gunsmoke, the episode called The Roundup, broadcast on Valentine's Day in 1953. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey co-produces the show, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And you can always visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Even for Friday and Smith, there's a scarcity of clues in tonight's Dragnet episode. It's called The Big Will. And it comes from June 7th, 1953, NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A man has been shot and critically wounded. There's no trace of the suspect. Your job, find him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step-by-step step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. 
It was Sunday, April 26th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. I was on my way back to the office, and it was 11.44 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, Frank. Hi. Anybody call? Yeah, Lopey called. Wants to know if he left his overshoes. No, I didn't see him. It's quit raining anyway. What are you doing there? Just a minute, John. What's the scale for? The needle's bent. And what are you doing? Hey, weighing my stuff. Your what? Weighing my stuff. Oh, yeah. I guess everybody ought to know what his stuff weighs, huh? Yeah. Let's see. Got my gun. Better take the bullets out first. What are you doing that for? Boy, I'm separate, Joe. Keep track. Yeah, that's right. Ah, uh, the bullets. Uh-huh. Handcuffs. Frank, did anybody ever ask you about all this? And my bullet clip. Look, I'm a member of the club here, too. What's this all about? Pencils. Four? Yeah, press kind of hard. Yeah. Other stuff in my wallet. Change. Keys. Boy, no wonder my feet kill me. What? Six pounds, two and a half ounces. That's what I carry, Joe. Working night's got a flashlight, too. That's good for another pound. You figure that's what makes your feet hurt, huh? Sure. Uh-huh, yeah. Six pounds, two ounces. How much do you weigh, Frank? Any calls? Come on, how much? Joe, I get that all day from Faye. Never thought I'd get it from you. Yeah, it's a hot shot. I'll get it. What do you got? Shooting on East Berendo. 11.45 p.m. We swung out of the City Hall garage and headed south on Main Street. The streets were still wet after the rain. Code 3, red light and siren. And even with that, driving a fast car is no picnic. You can be wrong at every corner. Big buildings to block off the sound of your siren. Cars to shield the red light from oncoming motorists. It's no fun. There'd been a shooting and we had to get there. As Frank and I swung around the last streetcar on Main Street and picked up Berendo, we heard the police radio operator dispatching ambulance G-13 to the address we were headed for. We didn't know what direction the ambulance would come from, so for the next few blocks we drove with added caution, knowing that our siren would keep us from hearing theirs. Five blocks ahead through the mist, we could see the red lights of a police car parked at the curb. A radio car in the area had gotten the call and answered it immediately. It was 11.52 p.m. when we pulled up in front of 1981 East Berendo. The large house was dark. Two neighborhood women stood in the driveway and directed us to the back of the house where we found the officers from Unit 1A6. We checked with them and got the information that they'd come up with. They suggested that they canvass the immediate area for any information on the assailant. Frank and I went in through the back door of the house. The victim lay on the floor. He was unconscious and bleeding profusely. His head was held in the lap of another man. Are you the doctor? No, sir. We're police officers. The ambulance is on the way here. If I could just stop the bleeding, it's his chest. Do you know who did this? No. Has he been conscious at all since you've been here? Just for a second. Did he say anything? Well, I heard the shot and came right over. He was laying here on the floor right here. Poor guy. Yes, sir. Did he say anything? Help me. That's all he said. Help me. I didn't know what to do. I got this towel from the sink and tried to stop the bleeding. Fist in my handkerchief. That's all I had. Can't do much, but I had to try. I had to keep pressing. That's all I could think of. Keep pressing. Try to stop it. Yes, sir. Do you feel all right, sir? Oh, yes, yes. I'm all right. Got to help him. Here, let me get in there and take care of that. All right, come on, sir. I can get under. I okay, got it, Joe. All right. Yes, sir. Come on, sir. Get up. That's all right. You'll handle this. The excitement. Can't seem to get my breath. Something we can get for you? No, I'll be all right. I think I'll get a drink of water. I'd rather you wouldn't touch that glass, sir. Huh? Oh, yeah. Fingerprints. Well, I can wait. Oh, say, I did touch that towel. 
Hope it didn't hurt anything. Didn't mean to. No, sir, I don't think so. What's your name? Paul West. I live right next door, right across the driveway, gray house. Uh-huh. What if you could tell us what happened? Sure, I want to help all I can. I live right next door, and I was the first one here. Anything I can do, I want to help. Yes, sir. I've known Charlie for, oh, I guess it's maybe 40 years. Long time. Charlie, that's the man's name here? Yes, Charles Stahl. How you doing, Frank? That's pretty bad. I don't know. Would you tell us what happened here? Well, it was right after Charlie left my place. That's when I heard the noise. What noise, West? I was out on my porch putting out the cans, getting the boxer ready when I heard the noise. First off, I thought Charlie was doing the same thing, getting the cans ready. Well, what kind of a noise? Well, like he dropped the box. I know now that wasn't it. Uh, Joe, just a minute, boys. Yeah. I think he's coming around. Is he coming too? Is he going to say anything? Who shot him? Right, just a minute. What's his name again? Stahl. Mr. Stahl. Mr. Stahl. Maybe you talk to me. He knows me. We're friends. Let me talk no, to him. No, wait right there, will you, Wes? I just wanted to help. All right, stay right there. Now, Mr. Stahl, we want to help you. Can you tell us who shot you? Hey, what you saying? Is he giving you the right, name? Hold it, Wes. Just a minute. How about it, Frank? He's dead. Did he say anything? Yeah. Not much help. Huh? Ask me not to shoot him again. It was a couple of minutes before midnight when Charles Stahl died in Frank's arms. According to the next-door neighbor, Paul West, the victim was 55 years old. He was not married, and he lived in the big house on Barendo by himself. The ambulance crew returned to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital after making out a DOA report, and the coroner's office was asked to pick up the body. Twelve minutes later, coroner's deputies Maxwell and Martinez arrived. Before the murdered man's body was removed, the crew from the crime lab photographed the scene, and Frank and I signed the property receipt for the money and the personal effects found on the body. We asked the crime lab to check a 32 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver found on the floor under the kitchen stove. There was one empty cartridge in the cylinder. We put in a call to gun records, but we found nothing on the gun. A call to R&I on the victim of the shooting turned up nothing. Latent fingerprints found nothing on the murder weapon. The crime lab crew found no footprints in the ground near the house, but they did find several marks of tire tracks and one good impression left in the moist dirt in the alley behind the house. A plaster cast was made of the imprint, and it was returned to the office to be booked as evidence. We checked with the officers in Unit 1A6, but they said that in canvassing the neighborhood, they'd been unable to come up with any new leads. 12.21 a.m., we checked back into the house, and we talked to the neighbor, Paul West. Now, what kind of a job did Stahl have? Owned a print shop, Stahl Press, over on the east side. Was he in business by himself? What do you mean? Well, did he have any partners? No, Charlie owned it right out. Had the pink slip, you might say. Mm -hmm. Can you give us the address? Sure, biggest print shop on the east side. Printed just about everything. Posters, display cards, things like that. He gave me some cards last Christmas. Here, take a look. That's my name, embossed. Yes, sir. Did it himself. Mm -hmm. That's very nice, sir. Uh, Can I have that back, please? Oh, sure, here you are. Embossed. Anybody in the shop with him? Any employees? Well, there's the Becker kids, Pete and Alvin. They work in the shop, do they? Yeah, I've been with him. I guess it's been about five years. How's he get along with them, would you know? Fine. I never heard about any trouble. I've been kind of friends of the family. Charlie was pretty fond of them. Did he have any personal enemies, maybe because of the business? No, not that I know of. Uh-huh. How long did you say you've known Stahl? Been about 40 years. We grew up together. I see. His father and mine built these houses at the same time. Charlie and I went to school together. Belonged to the same club. We were soldiers together. Served in the 146th Field Artillery in the war. Was that the last war, sir? Oh, no, the big one. First World War. Oh, I see. Came back and we lived right here, side by side, all this time. We've been friends, Charlie and me. Good friends. You've got to catch the person that did this. You've got to get him. You said earlier that Stahl had been over to your house tonight. Yes, that's right. Did he have any special reason for the visit? Well, he didn't need a reason. 
Charlie was always welcome. Always. Well, yes, sir, we understand. Of course, tonight's Sunday. We had a game. Sir? Bridge. Always play bridge on Sunday night. Never miss. Well, what time did he get to your house? Same time as always, right after supper. What time's that, sir? Right after 7.30. We were just finishing supper when he came in. Charlie sat down, had dessert and coffee with us. Uh-huh. Rice pudding with raisins. Charlie had two dishes. Then we started to play bridge. Oh, I see. Now, who else was there? You mean the game? Yeah. Oh, just Rose and Paula. Rose, my wife, and Paula's my daughter. Anything unusual happened tonight? Uh, just once. Yeah, what was that? Well, a bit of grand slam in spades and made it. Even with Rose, seven spades. Well, that's not exactly what we mean, Wes. Uh, pretty unusual. Yes, sir, but did anything happen with Stahl? Sure, he almost hit the ceiling when we made it. Got pretty mad, didn't he? Sure. Since we've been playing, most he ever did was make a little slam. Mm-hmm. He went right home after that. I guess that's when he went out to empty the cans. Anyway, that's when I heard the noise. That was the shot, sir. Uh, it must have been. I didn't know it at the time, but I guess that's what it was. What'd you do after you heard the shot? Well, now, at the time, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe Charlie had fallen and hurt himself. Mm-hmm. I looked over at his place, but there wasn't any lights on. I went out the curb with a box of cans. Came back, and I didn't see Charlie, so I walked over. I see. I called to him, asked if he was all right. Didn't get no answer, so I came in. Found him right on the floor, where he was when you came in. You're the one who put in the call, is that right? Yeah, I called the operator and told her to get an ambulance right over that Charlie had been shot. Told her to send a policeman. Now, what time was it when Stahl left your house? Oh, it must have been about 11.15 or so. Earlier than usual, we always play almost to midnight. I guess Charlie got miffed about the grand slam I made, and then Paula kidded him about the woman. What woman is that? Oh, it wasn't anything. I went on and looked. Nobody there. Sir? A couple of times, Charlie thought he heard a woman coughing outside the window by his house. I went over to the window, looked out there, but there wasn't anybody there. Well, did you hear this coughing? No, not really. After Charlie started talking about it, I thought I did, but when I went out to look, there wasn't anybody there. His imagination, that's all. He was mad because of the slam. Well, did you hear anything at all when you were out and back? Huh? Well, when you went into Stahl's house, did you hear anybody around? A car, maybe? Something like that? No, not a soul. Uh, Wes, could somebody have gone out the front of the house when you came in the back? Wouldn't seem it could be. I'd have heard him if they did. Well, then you'd say that whoever shot Stahl wasn't in the house when you went in, is that it? Pretty sure about that. Of course, they might have left before I went in. Sir? Well, I'd already took a box of cans out in front after I heard the noise... If there's anybody in the house, they could have gotten out then. But you didn't see anybody, did you? No, nobody at all. Do you know if Stahl has any relatives in Los Angeles? No. He hasn't, huh? Hasn't got any any place, none at all. Always kind of worried him. Why is that? Well, he used to say he didn't have any folks to leave his things to. The house, the print shop. Mm-hmm. He made a will, though. All legal with a seal and all. Official. He used to talk to me about it. I see. You know who the beneficiary was, would you? Not now. What? Well, I knew who it was, but he said he was going to change it. Said he was going to put a new name on. What did he say, whose? Nope. Just said I'd be surprised. We looked through the victim's desk for the will. In one of the bottom drawers, we found a locked tin box. In a box of paper clips, we found a key that fit. In the top liner of the box, there was a Purple Heart ribbon and an American victory medal from the First World War. In the bottom of the box, there were several government bonds and the will. In it, he left the house and the rest of his possessions to a Mrs. Margaret Becker... The print shop and the business he left to Mrs. Becker's sons, Peter and Alvin. The will was dated three years previously. On a separate piece of paper, we found an address for a Mrs. Margaret Becker, the Lone Star Motel on Sepulveda Boulevard. 12.40 a.m., we affixed the public administrator's seal, which the coroner's deputy had left with us, to the door of the victim's house. We talked with the wife and daughter of the neighbor, Paul West. They confirmed the story he'd given us. On the way to talk to the Becker woman, we stopped and called the office. They checked the name through R&I, but they came up with no identification. 
We called Sergeant Jay Allen at the crime lab, and he told us that the tire marks found in the rear of the victim's house were made by three BF Goodrich tires and one truck tire. He said that the cast they'd made was of the truck tire, as it was the only one they could lift, and that it was made by the left front wheel. There was a car parked in front of the manager's cottage. The registration listed Margaret Becker as the owner. Legal the same. We checked it. Motor's cold. Yeah. Tires don't match. Well, nice try. Yeah. Let's go. I get it. Late? Yeah. One fifteen. Hmm. Probably asleep. What's the matter? Can't you read? Sign says no vacancy. That means full up. N-O, that means no. Waking somebody at this hour? Yes, ma'am. And don't We're... ask me if I know someplace where you can stay because I don't. Good night. Just a minute, Miss Becker. How do you know my name? Police officers. Well, what do you want around here? I run a clean place. No trouble. License all paid up. Nothing wrong. We'd like to talk to you. What about? You know a man named Charles Stahl? What are you asking that for? We'd like to know. And I want to know why you're asking. What's this all about? Anything wrong with Charlie? That's why you're out here? Yes, ma'am. What's wrong? Well, it's pretty serious. Well, go ahead. You can tell me. Well, he's dead, Miss Becker. Come in. Thank you. What's the matter, Margaret? Who are these fellows? Who are you? What are you doing here? They're policemen. Well, we don't need you. We got the whole thing cleaned up. We took care of it ourselves. Nobody sent for you. We took care of him. No, Daddy. They're here about Charles. Charlie stole? Yes, sir. That's right. Charlie here? Well, where is he? He's not here, Daddy. Something's happened to him. What? He's dead. Dead? Charlie? Yes. Well, how did it happen? An accident? No, sir. Oh, poor Charlie Stahl. He's a nice boy. Too bad. I thought you was here about the fellow number eight, the loud one. What's that, sir? man from Texas came in tonight pretty drunk. We had to take him in. Daddy put him to bed. He was pretty drunk. Heavy, too. That's what he thought you were out here for. Couldn't even get out of his car. Margaret had the pocket for him. Loud, you know, real drunk. Wore his pants inside his boots. What was it you wanted to see me about? There's a few questions we'd like to ask you. About Charles? Yes, ma'am. When was the last time you saw him? Must have been a couple of weeks ago. I saw him last week, uh, April 22nd. Went fishing down on the pier. Miss Becker, what was your relationship with Stahl? Good friends, that's all. We knew each other almost all our lives. They used to live next door to him. Went through school together. I always thought they were going to get married. Charlie was a good boy. You see much of him lately? Mm, no, not too much. I've been busy here with Daddy, and Charlie's had other things to do. Move next door to him on December 14th. Exactly 42 years ago, come with her. You know if he had any enemies, ma'am? No, can't think of anyone who didn't like Charlie. Didn't catch anything at the pier. Bad bait. You've been home all evening, have you? Yeah. Why'd you ask that? Well, it's just routine. You think I had something to do with it, that it? No, ma'am, we don't. Pinheads, that's what you need. I beg your pardon, sir? Pinhead anchovies, that's what you need for pier fishing. You yeah. say it's routine, but I don't like you coming in here, waking us up with all these questions. We've had a bad night, that drunk coming in here. We've been on the go ever since then. Two years ago, we used to be able to get a lot of pinheads. Not anymore. You want to make any accusations, you talk to Paul West. You just talk to him. Try your routine questions there. Paul West? Yeah, Charlie's neighbor. He's never liked Charlie, never. Anyone heard Charlie? It was Paul. Why'd he say that, Mrs. Becker? Now, years ago, Charlie was sweet on Paul's sister. On the way back from the beach one night, there was an accident, and Paul's sister was killed. Never forgave Charlie. Always held him to blame. Well, why was that, Miss Becker? Charlie was driving. Paul hated Charles for it. Now the thing with the daughter. Paul didn't like that either. Somebody did something to Charlie. You routine the man next door. You talk to Paul West. Now get out of here. I want to get some sleep. If you got any more questions, you come back in the morning and I'll talk to you then. You get out of here now. Yes, ma'am. What do you mean, the thing with her, West's daughter? All right. I'll tell you that, and then you've got to get out of here. Yes, ma'am. A couple of months ago, Paula came home, divorced her husband, and moved home. 
Right away, Charlie got sweet on her. Paul didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. Did he ever say anything to stall about it? You bet he did. They had a lot of arguments, a lot of them. You talk to Paul West. He's the one you got to talk to. Now, good night. We'll be back in the morning, ma'am. I'll be here. Don't worry. I'll talk to you then. I'm going fishing tomorrow. They're getting pinheads now. There's a new one, huh? West's daughter. Yeah. Better check it out. Hold it a minute. Huh? Let's take a look back at the carport here. There it is. A Texas license plate. Yeah. I'll check the motor. How about it? Radiator's warm. How about the wheels? Three Goodrich tires and a truck tire. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. The information we'd gotten from the crime lab gave us the make of the tires that had left the imprints in back of the victim's house. Three of the tires had been identified as being of Goodrich's make. The fourth was a truck tire. The car we'd found in the carport of cabin number eight had tires that matched the description. 1.26 a.m., we went back to talk to Margaret Becker. I'd like to know just what this is all about. Why you're snooping around asking questions. Now, why don't you come right on out with it? Come on, you think I had something to do with Charlie being dead, isn't that it? No, ma'am, we told you before, this is just a routine investigation. We're trying to get the facts here. You still haven't told us about Charlie. Was he killed? Yes, ma'am. You think I did it? We didn't say that. Not in so many words you didn't, but that's what you meant. You found the will. That's what made you think it was me, isn't that it? You knew about the will, didn't you? Certainly I knew about it. Charles told me when he had it drawn up. Said he didn't have anybody else who wanted to see that me and the boys were taken care of. Too bad about Charlie Stall. He's a good boy. He's going to take care of Margaret. He ever say anything to you about changing the will? Yes. Told me about it the last time I saw him. Had lunch together and he told me then. Tell you what changes he was going to make? No, not right out. Didn't have to. I knew. I could tell. The way he's been acting lately, I could tell. So could I. Well, what do you mean the way he's been acting? Was there anything wrong? Well, this thing with Paula. Told you about that. Charlie's been acting like a fool, falling all over, gushing sweet talk. Silly. Mm-hmm. Well, she had him in a trance. Her just 25 and him 55. Talk about spring and winter. Well, that was them. How'd Paula feel about this? How'd you expect her to feel? She thought that Charlie'd leave her the money, house, everything. She went right along with it, real brazen. Sir? Yeah? You said earlier that you thought your daughter and Mr. Stahl might get married. Is that right? You better did. They always been in love. Daddy, that's not true. Which well, is too. I'm your father. Now, you, you show a little respect. After that no-good Becca walked out on Maggie, she and Charlie started to see each other again. Went real nice. Then Paula come into town, and Charlie Stahl took up with her. Mm-hmm. Charlie Stahl made out his will so that everything went to Margaret and the kids. Then he decided he'd change it. You knew about the will, too? Huh? Sure, I was a friend of Charlie's. We used to go fishing all the time, talk about things. I told him that he was wrong to even think of changing his will. Uh, I told him that he was wrong. What time did you say that car from Texas got in, ma'am? I told you, about 10.15. Well, ma'am, is it possible that somebody could have taken the car out without you knowing about it? Hey, wait a minute, Margaret. That ain't right. What? It wasn't that late. It was only about 8 when he come in. I remember because I was in bed at 8.30. I put him to bed and then come back and went to bed myself. I wanted to get some sleep kind of going fishing in the morning. You're pretty sure about the time, are you? Well, you bet. I remember because I got in bed and turned on the radio. Listened to that uh, radio program about the detective. 
fell asleep before the end. Never did find out who stole the jewels and did the murder. What was your daughter doing when you came back? Just sitting there. She went out to put the car away, and I went to bed. Mm -hmm. How long was she outside? I don't know. A few minutes, I guess. Can you tell us a little closer than that? Not very well. I told you I went to sleep. I didn't hear her come in. Miss Becker, I wonder if you get dressed, please. We'd like to talk to you downtown. What for? Well, we have a report from our crime lab. They found some tire tracks in back of Stahl's house tonight. They were fresh tracks. They'd been made since it stopped raining. Those tracks match the car you got parked back there. And you think I drove the car over to Charlie's? Well, we'd like to talk about it. Why? Why'd I do a thing like that? Why'd I want to kill Charlie? Maybe because he was going to cut you out of his will. Looks like a pretty good motive. Oh, you two are out of your minds. All right, ma'am. We'll lay it out for you. You better do that. Make an accusation you can't back up. The way the evidence looks, we got a pretty good case here. The way it looks, you took the card and you drove it over to Stalls. He was next door playing cards, so you waited in the kitchen for him to come back. A couple of times, you coughed while you were waiting. He heard you. He came over to the window to see who it was. Because it was dark, he couldn't see you. I haven't heard a story like that since I stopped reading fairy tales. He came home and you killed him. Then you heard Mr. West next door. He came over to see what it was. You went out the back way to the car that you'd parked in the alley. And you drove it back here. That's the way it looks to you, is it? Yes, ma'am, that's the way it looks. You figure she killed Charlie Stoll? Yes, sir. You gonna arrest Margaret? I want to talk to her about it. Oh, gonna take her down to jail, huh? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm, well, I'll go and put my clothes on. No, that isn't necessary for you to go with her, sir. Well, she's not going. What? I killed Charlie Stoll. Daddy. You killed him? Yep. Got tired of how I was treating Margaret. Got good and tired of him talking about how he was gonna change the will. I couldn't let him do that. I just killed him and drove the car over and did it. What time was all this? Huh? What time did you go over to Stalls? Right after the fellow from Texas. I guess it was about nine. What time did you kill him? Oh, it must have been 10.30 or so. I had to wait for him to get through playing cards. I had to wait for him to come home. Why are you doing this, Daddy? Why am I doing it? I said somebody's got to take care of the kids. Somebody's got to take care of you. I'm an old man. I ain't much use to anybody. All right, come on, Miss Becker. You want to get dressed now? She ain't the one. I did it. I killed Charlie Stahl. I already confessed. Why don't you believe me? Why don't you arrest me now? I did it. No, I'm afraid not. You got the times a little mixed up. Stahl wasn't killed at 10.30. No, he's just trying to help me, but he doesn't have to. Him and me were both here all night. Neither one of us left. I was in bed and asleep at midnight. Why do you say that? What? Why do you think Stahl was killed around midnight? I didn't say that. You said that you were home and in bed by midnight, didn't you? Just a figure of speech. I think I've talked enough to you. I don't have to say anything more. I'm going to see a lawyer about it. You got no right. I'm the one that did it. I'm the one. Why'd you kill him, Mrs. Becker? You want to tell us? Get old, nobody believes you. How about it, Miss Becker? I'll get dressed. You did kill him then, huh? Yes, I did it. Wasn't because of the money, though. You got to believe that. Wasn't because of the money. Ma'am. I loved him. Deep in my heart, I loved him. Always did. Even when we were kids. I thought he was going to marry me. Then he met Paula. He shouldn't have done it, Margaret. I loved him and he didn't want me. He wanted Paula. Do you know what that's like? What's that? Love somebody and them not want you. Begins to eat at you. Pretty soon you can't stand it anymore. That's why I did it. Not for the money, you understand? I just wanted him. Yeah. Just him. That's all I wanted. Not his money. You believe that? I never wanted his money. I just wanted him. You believe that? Well, it really doesn't make any difference, does it? How do you mean? You didn't get either one. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. 
On August 6th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Margaret Alice Becker was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. She was sentenced to life imprisonment on the California Institute for Women, Corona, California. Further investigation proved that the suspect's father, John Samuel Woodbridge, was not implicated in the murder. He was not held. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Rodman, Helen Cleave, Ralph Moody. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. The Big Will, an episode of Dragnet from the late spring of 1953 and from the big broadcast. We've been wanting all year to play a song that was one of the biggest hits of the year in 1944 at the height of World War II. It was sung by Bing Crosby in the biggest grossing picture of that year, Going My Way. The film won seven Academy Awards, including one for Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Heusen for writing the best song. The Decca recording was number one for nine weeks that year, but we're going to play what we think was the very first public performance of the song by Mr. Crosby on his NBC Craft Music Hall show 75 years ago. From April 13th, 1944, here he is with John Scott Trotter's orchestra and the Craft Choral Club with Swinging on a Star. Here with a new tune from his forthcoming picture going my way is Bing Crosby. <laughs> Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, kicks up at anything he hears. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Oh, would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a pig? A pig is an animal with dirt on his face, his shoes are a terrible disgrace. He has no manner when he eats his food. He's fat and lazy and extremely rude. But if you don't care a feather or a pig, you may grow up to be a pig. Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. You can be better off than you are. Or would you rather be a pig? Won't do anything but 
But then if that sort of life is what you wish You may grow up to be a fish Jumps up slippery thing And all the monkeys Are in the zoo Every day you meet Quite a few So you see It's all up to you You can be better Than you are You could be swinging On a star The number one hit in America 75 years ago this week, Bing Crosby's Swinging on a Star. That radio debut version came from two months before D-Day in 1944. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, in HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. You may remember John Houseman as Professor Kingsfield on the TV show The Paper Chase. Theater buffs know him as the producer or co-producer of Orson Welles' most famous stage productions, including The Cradle Will Rock and Julius Caesar. But he worked extensively in radio as well, mostly with Mr. Welles, but often on his own, and sometimes in a much more creative capacity. For the Columbia Workshop which had originated with the Mercury Players Troupe that Wells and Hausman had founded, he did a very artsy project, a half-hour version of Euripides' The Trojan Women. Mr. Hausman not only adapted the classic with Edith Hamilton from her translation, he directed the production with a cast that included Jessica Tandy, George Kouloris, Mildred Natwick, and Mr. Hausman's ex-wife, Zita Johan. From December 8, 1940, it's John Houseman's CBS Columbia Workshop production of Euripides' tragedy, The Trojan Women. The Columbia Workshop presents The Trojan Women by Euripides, adapted for radio by John Houseman and the translator Edith Hamilton, with score by Virgil Thompson. The world's greatest play about war was written 2,356 years ago. It has little plot and almost no action. The characters, except for a few subordinate parts, are all women. After ten years of war, a great city has fallen. Only women are left. Their husbands dead, their children taken from them. They are waiting to be deported as slaves. One is an old woman whose husband, the king, has been murdered before her eyes. Her sons, too, are dead. And she, who was queen, is now a slave. There is her daughter, a virgin dedicated to the service of the temple, who has become the property of the victorious commander-in-chief. Her daughter-in-law, the wife of her favorite son, is to belong to the son of the man who killed him. And there are other humbler women, 
weeping for the loss of home, husband, children, and everything sweet. That is the whole of it. morning, soon after sunrise. To the east, dim against the sky, are the shattered towers of Troy, the conquered city. To the west, running down to the sea, is the beach where the victorious Greek army is encamped, and the Greek warships and transports drawn up, being made ready for the long voyage home. We are just outside the city gates with the prisoners, Trojan women. One of them, an old woman, is lying on the ground. Her face in the dust. Ah, the ways of fate are the ways of the wind. Drift with the stream, drift with fate. No use to turn the prow to breast the waves. Let the boat go as it chances. Keep silent. Speak. Weep then. Cry. Oh, what? What sorrow is there that is not mine? Grief to weep for, country lost, and children, and husband, glory of all my house brought low. Troy is no longer. We are not the lords of Troy. Who am I then that wait here at a Greek king's door, a slave that men drive on, an old gray woman that has no home? Oh, Troy. Let us weep for her. Your cry, O oh, Hecuba. Oh, such a cry. What does it mean? There in the tent we heard you call so piteously. In the tent we were weeping too, for we are slaves. Look, child. There where the Greek ships lie. They are moving. The men hold oars. Look at the sailors standing on the prows. Oh, God, what will they do? Carry me off over the sea in a ship far from home. You are? And I know nothing. Oh, Troy, unhappy Troy. We, the unhappy, leave you. We who are living and we who are dead. Have word come from the Greek camp? Whose slave shall I be? Wait for the lot drawing. It is near. Am I a slave? To whom? Where? How? An old gray woman patient to endure. A bee without a sting. An image of what was alive or the ghost of one dead. I watch at a master's door. I nurse his children. Once I was queen in Troy. The shuttle will still pass through my hands. But the loom will not be in Troy. My dead sons. I would look at them once more. Never again. Worse to come. A Greek's bed. Oh, never. Not that for me. Look. Soldiers, they're coming to tell us what. What will they say? A detachment of Greek soldiers is marching up from the beach. It has come. Once we only feared it. Lots are drawn. A different man takes each. My daughter. Who drew her? Cassandra. King Agamemnon chose her. To serve his Spartan wife? No. For the king's own bed. Oh, no. She has vowed to God a virgin always. And she is mad now. Driven mad with that grief, too. 
My other child you took from me. She is free from trouble. And Hector's wife, my Hector, where does she go? Andromache? Achilles' son took her. And I, old gray-head, whose slave am I, creeping along with my crutch? Slave of the king of Ithaca, Odysseus. Pity me, women of Troy. Oh, Hecuba, you know what lies before you. But I, what man among the Greeks owns me? Go now and bring Cassandra here. Be quick. We must give her to the chief, and then these here to all the other generals. Open there. Open the gate. It is my daughter, Cassandra. Agamemnon, the great, the glorious lord of Greece. I shall kill him, mother. Lay his house as low as he laid ours. Make him pay for all he made my father suffer. And I will show you this town now. Yes, mother, is happier than the Greeks. I know that I am mad, but mother, dearest, now for this one time I do not rave. Men died, by tens of thousands died here before Troy. And why? No man had moved their landmarks or laid siege to their high-walled towns. War took them, and they never saw their children. No wife with gentle hands shrouded them for their grave. They lie in a strange land, and in their homes are sorrows, too. Lonely women who died. Old men who waited for sons that never came. No son left to them to make the offering at their graves. That was the glorious victory they won. Oh, fools, the men who lay a city waste, giving to desolation temples, tombs, the sanctuaries of the dead, so soon to die themselves. But we... We Trojans died to save our people. No glory greater. Our dead, the earth of their own land has covered them. And Hector's pain. Your Hector. Mother, hear me. This is the truth. He died the best. A hero. The only shame is not to die like that. So, Mother, do not pity Troy or me upon my bridal bed. Now, if the high gods had not made you mad, I would have paid you for those evil words, but... Well, you know her mind is not quite right. 
So all she said against Greece and for Troy, I never heard. The wind blew it away. Come with me to the ship now. Where is the ship? How do I go on board? Spread the sail. The wind comes swift. Mother, my mother, do not weep. Farewell, dear city. Brothers, in Troy's earth laid. My father, a little time, and I shall be with you. Now Cassandra is led off by the soldiers down toward the ships. Oh, the queen! See, she is falling. Oh, help! She cannot speak. Will you leave her on the ground? Up, lift her up. I cannot stand. Too much is on me. Oh, I will think of good days gone, crowning my sorrow by remembering we were kings, and a king I married. Sons I bore him. Many sons. No woman, Trojan, Greek, or stranger had sons like mine. I saw them fall beneath Greek spears. Their father. I saw him fall, murdered. I myself, upon the altar when his town was lost. My daughters, maidens, reared to marry kings, torn from me. All gone. No hope that I shall look upon their faces anymore, or they on mine. And now the end. An old gray slave, I go to Greece. I, who bore Hector. On the ground lay this old body down that once slept in a royal bed. Torn rags around me. Torn flesh beneath. Rocks for my pillow. There to fall and die, wasted with tears. Soldiers are passing, straggling out of the city. They are loaded with plunder. Their ranks part and a woman is seen coming forward with a child in her arms. Look, Hecuba, it is Andromache. And in her arms, her child is Cyanax, the son of Hector. Most sorrowful of women, where do you go? I go where the Greeks take me. Oh, sorrow. Oh, sorrow. Why should you weep? This sorrow is mine. My children gone. Gone. Happiness. Troy. And you live... Hector. My son, my eldest son, whom I bore to Priam, come to me. Lead me to death. Death. Oh, deep desire. Such is our pain. For a city that has fallen. Look and see. The end of the house where I bore my children. Driven like cattle, captured in a raid, my child and I. The free changed to a slave. It is fearful to be helpless. Just now they took Cassandra from me. And still more sorrow for you. More than that. Number my sorrows, will you? Measure them. You have lost another daughter. Alexina lies dead upon Achilles' tomb. Murdered. My child. And that is what the soldier meant. Could not read his riddle. She has died her death. And happier by far dying than I alive. Life cannot be what death is, child. Life is hope. Death is empty. Oh, mother. To die is only not to be. And rather death 
than life with bitter grief. They have no pain. They do not feel their wrongs. She is dead, your daughter, as if she never had been born. She does not know the wickedness that killed her, while I... Oh, Hector, my beloved, you were all to me. Wise, noble, mighty in wealth, in manhood. No man had touched me when you took me. Took me from my father's home. And you are dead. And I, with other plunder, am sent by sea to Greece. You're dead, Alexina, you weep for. What does she know of pain like mine? The living must have hope. Not I. Not anymore. I will not lie to my own heart. No good will ever come. We stand at the same point of pain. You mourn your ruins, and in your words I hear my own calamity. A detachment of soldiers is approaching, coming up from the beach again. Wife of the noblest man that was in Troy. Oh, wife of Hector, do not hate me. Against my will I come to tell you, the people and the kings have all resolved. What is it? Evil follows words like those. Your child must die. There, now you know it all. They said a hero's son must not grow up. Gold on their own sons may that verdict fall. But from the towering wall of Troy be thrown. Now, now let it be done. Don't cling so to him. Bear your pain the way brave women suffer. Don't look for any help. Think. The city gone. Your husband too. And you were captive and alone. One woman. How can you fight us? Bear it as best you can. Give me the child. Thou. Die, my best beloved. My own. My treasure. In cruel hands. Leaving your mother comfortless. Your father was too noble. That is why they kill you. Weeping, my little one. There, there. You cannot know what waits for you. Why hold me with your hands so fast? You little bird. Hiding beneath my wings. And Hector will not come. He will not come up from the tomb, great spear in hand, to save you. How will it be? Falling down, down, all broken, none to pity him. You little thing, curled in my arms, your mother's dearest. How sweet the fragrance of you. All nothing, then. This breast from which your baby mouth sucks milk. My labor, too. My care when I grew wasted watching you. Kiss me. Never again. Come closer. Closer. Your mother who bore you. Put your arms around my neck. Now, kiss me. Lips 
city wall where you must die. Take him away. Now the soldiers are marching away into the empty city. One of them carries the child as Tyanite. Child. Son of my dear son. Poor child. What can I do for you? All I have now to give is grief. Tears and more tears. Falling, falling, my cup is full. soldiers is returning from the city. Two of them are carrying on a shield the body of the child as Tyanax. They're bringing back the body. The dead child's body. The dead Tyanax. They threw him from the tower. As one might pitch a ball. And now they have brought him here. One ship is waiting, Hecuba, to take aboard the last of all the spoil. The chief himself had sailed because of news he had. And with him went Andromache, the dead boy's mother. And this bronze-fronted shield which Hector used in battle, she begged that he might lie upon it in his grave. And in your arms she told me I must lay him, for you to cover the body if you still have anything. A cloak left. And to put flowers on him if you could, since she has gone... So, after you have laid him out and heaped the earth above him, when a loud trumpet call is sounded, go to the Greek ships and embark, all of you. Here is the body. See, one trouble I saved you. As we passed the stream, I let the water run on him and washed his wounds. Let the shield down. The great round shield of Hector. I wish I need not look at it. The shield is set down, and the Greek soldiers march off in formation. They have gone now, down the hill toward their ships. Hecuba and the other women are left alone. You conquered. Well, your spears are sharp, but not your wits. You feared a child. You murdered him. You were frightened then. You thought he might build up our ruined Troy. And yet, when Hector fought and thousands at his side, we fell beneath you. Now, then all is lost. The city captured and the Trojans dead. 
a little child like this made you afraid. Now Hecuba is kneeling beside the dead child. Poor little one. How savagely our ancient walls have torn away the curls your mother's fingers made. And where she pressed her kisses. Here, where the broken bone grins white. Oh, no, I cannot. Dear hands. The same dear shake your father's head. How loosely now they fall. And dear proud lips forever closed. How often have you climbed into my bed, called me sweet names and told me, Grandmother, when you are dead, I'll lead my soldiers all to ride out past your tomb. Not you, but I, old, homeless, childless, must lay you in your grave, so young, so miserably dead. What could a poet carve upon your tomb? The child lies here, whom strong men feared and slew. Ah, oh, they should boast of that. Oh, bring such covering for the dead body as we still have. God has not left us much to make a show with. Some of the women come forward, offering their torn clothes, which Hecuba lays over the body of the child. Here for your hands we bring the shrouds. All that we have we give you. For this was once our prince. So on your wedding day I would have dressed you. The highest princess of the east, your bride. Now on your dead body I lay raiment. All that is left of the splendor that was Troy. And the great shield of Hector. Glorious in battle, it too shall have its share of honor. Undying, it will lie beside the bed. You, child of our bitter sorrow, the earth will now receive you. Mourn, oh mother, mourn. Mourn, weeping for all the dead with bitter tears. Now the funeral rite begins. Hecuba's hands move over the child's body in a ritual gesture of healing the wound. I heal your wounds. With linen I bind them. My words only not in truth. But soon among the dead your father will welcome. Care for you. Beat. Beat your head. Lift your hands and let them fall. All this the gods would have pain for us. And pain for Troy. And yet, had God not bowed us down, not laid us low in dust, none would have sung of us or told our wrongs in stories men will listen to forever. Go, lay our dead in his poor grave with these last gifts of death given to him. I think those that are gone care little how they are buried. Now four of the women go off slowly toward the city, carrying the body of the dead child on the shield to bury it in Trojan soil. Poor mother, her high hopes were stayed in you, and they are broken. They called you happy at your birth, a good man's son. Look, look, 
on the heights of Troy. Flames, fire! You're bringing torches! Fire! Fire! Look! Smoke is beginning to rise from the buildings of the city. This is the end, then. The height of sorrow. Troy is burning. But hurry, old feet, if you can, a little nearer. Here, where I can see my city. Say goodbye to her. You are so proud a city, and all the east the proudest. Soon your name, the whole world knew, will be taken from you. Ancient of days, our country, Lord. Father who made us. You see your children suffering. Have we deserved them? He sees, but Troy has perished. No city now, never again. Oh, terrible. The fire lights up the whole town. The inside rooms are burning. The citadel, it is all flame now. Troy is vanishing. War broke her. And what was left is going up in smoke. The glorious houses fall. First the spear, and then the fire. Children, hear your mother is calling. Children. They are dead, those you are calling. They will drive us away like cattle. Who are slaves out far away. Dead. Priam, my husband. You are dead. The evil that has found me, your wife. Do you know? No. Death has darkened his eyes. He was good, and the wicked killed him. Don't let him fall and be forgotten. The earth is kind, not designing, spreading out like smoke. I cannot see my house. All gone, all vanished. And we are gone. One here, one there. And Troy is gone forever. Is it the end? Do you know? The fall of Troy. Earthquake and flood and the city's end. Trembling body. Old, weak limbs. Carry me on to slavery. Farewell, my city. Farewell, my home. Where once my children stayed. There below, the Greek ships wait. The Trojan women walk slowly down the hill to the Greek ships. Toward their bondage. You have just heard the Columbia Workshop's production of The Trojan Women by Euripides, adapted for radio by John Houseman and Edith Hamilton from Miss Hamilton's translation. The score for sound and music was composed for this broadcast by Virgil Thompson. The players were... Mildred Natwick as Hecuba, Joanna Roos as Cassandra, Zeta Johan as Andromache, Jessica Tandy, Grace Coppin, and Rose Keane played the three women. George Kalouris was the soldier. The announcer was Byron McGrath. John Houseman directed. Next week at the same time, the Columbia Workshop will present two short contrasting pieces. The first is Symptoms of Being 35 by Ring Lardner, adapted by Vera Eichel. 
The second is The Electric King by Lord Dunsany. Adapted by a writer new to radio, Alfred Eisman. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was commercial radio, folks. The Columbia Workshop production of The Trojan Women, directed by John Houseman, who would have turned 117 years old tonight. It came to you from the big broadcast over non-commercial WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It's hard to get an idea nowadays of what a big deal it was when the spelunker Floyd Collins was trapped in a Kentucky cave in 1925. The attempt to rescue him was one of the first giant media events in American history, thanks to the relatively new medium of radio. The Floyd Collins story has inspired songs and poems, novels and movies, especially Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas, and even an off-Broadway musical. There are a lot of radio shows, too, that used the setup of someone trapped in an underground cave. It was the premise of an episode of the series High Adventure that, for this episode, might just as well have been called High Romance. From the Mutual Network, May 1st, 1948, it's a suspenseful story called Barrier, from the series High Adventure. <laughs> man with a hidden hate, then add footsteps in underground darkness where no man has walked before. The total reads, High Adventure. This is High Adventure. Here now is the meeting place for those who like stories of hard action, hard men, and smooth women. Welcome, members, new and old. For on this meeting's records is a new story with a problem as old as man. It's titled Barrier, and it's written and directed for the High Adventure Society by Robert Monroe. It concerns a man called Ward Delton. And here's Ward himself to tell it. Ward? I suppose all men find themselves going in the wrong direction at one time or another in their lives. I suppose, too, that a lot of them never find out they're wrong until it's too late to do anything about it. It has something to do with the way you think. At least it did in my case. I'd worked with John Rockwood for three years at the university, but it wasn't until we took the trip to Dry Ridge that I found out the truth about myself. There were three of us on that trip. John, myself... And Grace. Totally wonderful to have a piece of luck like this fall into our hands. Why, well, I believe I'm actually excited. I know I am. There's no telling what we'll find. A cave that's been closed for thousands of years, maybe never opened before. It'll be good for the prestige of the university, any discoveries we make. It'll be good for your prestige, John. Too bad Doc Evans couldn't come. This is more in his department. You'll do even better. You know, maybe I will attend. I used to play around in caves down in Boone County when I was a boy. 
Now I'm going back to do it scientifically. I may get claustrophobia. I don't know. You will when you have to crawl on your stomach through a two-foot tunnel for a quarter of a mile. Sounds rough. You didn't expect a picnic, did you? No, I guess not. A large part of the cavern is almost a mile into the side of a cliff. You have to work through the small passage to get there. That's fine as far as I'm concerned. Fine? We'll be pretty sure mobs of curious people haven't been tramping in and out. Oh, I don't think they have if it's that far underground. That's what I mean. We ought to be in pretty soon. Uh, I'll ask the conductor. Bring me a drink of water, will you, John? Glad to. You too, Ward? No, thanks. He's as happy as a kid on a vacation. It is a vacation for him. Yes, I suppose it is. John's needed one, too. Haven't you noticed it? Did you need one, too? I am on vacation. This is my quarter off. Just started. Oh, no freshman English. <laughs> no, thank goodness. You never seemed like a teacher to me, Ward. Well, it's all right, I suppose. I always thought you'd come back from the war and be a big man in some industry. Well, you know how it is. John offered me the instructorship in chemistry. I wanted to rest a while, so I took it. I wondered. It's a nice country. I like riding along, watching the fields roll past. Yes. Don't you? I'm happy. I'm glad you are. I guess we're happy, too. We? John and I are going to be married. Married? At the end of this quarter. We haven't told anyone yet, but you're such a good friend of John's, you ought to be among the first to hear about it. Yes, I, I suppose I should. Don't you think it's a good idea? Why, yes, I do. I'm happy for both of you. I'm sure. If this cave exploring gives John a little more prestige with the university, which it should, well, he'll be more secure, and they might even give him a full professorship. Just last night. Sounds rather sudden, but actually it isn't. Oh, excuse me. Don't let John know I told you, Ward. I'm sure he wants to break the news himself. No, no, I won't say anything. You know how he is. Of course. Well, I spilled most of it, but here's what's left. Half cinders, half water. I like it that way. Watch, you don't spill it, too. I probably will. We'll get there in about an hour. Then for the big adventure, deep underground where no man has been before. Uh, we'll have to get some equipment first thing. You didn't forget the list, did you, Ward? What? The list of supplies. Don't you have it? Oh, yes, I have it. What's the matter? Aren't you excited? In a couple of hours, we'll be examining what may be a great geological find. Sure, it's fine. Well, don't look so serious. This is going to be fun. Yes. Come on, snap out of it. I'm sorry. I was just thinking of something. What? I... Nothing important. Here's the list. I, I think you'll find everything but a bulldozer carefully itemized. Maybe we'll need that, too, before we're through. We'll need lights, electric, if we can get them. String wire into the cave and then... day too late. day too late, just one day. Three years of war, then three years of teaching the same flow sheets, just for one opportunity. Then when I get rid of enough shyness to make a decision, it's a day too late. One day. We get off the train at Dry Ridge, bought supplies and rented a car and drove up the road along the river until we came to the cave. A rock fall from the cliff face had exposed the opening, a crooked hole about two feet in diameter. While Grace made camp, John pulled electric lanterns from the car and warmed his way through the opening. I followed, scraping along on my stomach. His boot heels in my face. It was dark, and it was hard going. You notice? We're, uh, we're following the line of the fault, Ward. Huh? Well, I can see it. Dust. <coughs> A lot of it, isn't there? Yeah. 
It's getting larger now. I think we can almost stand up. It's, it's about time. Yes. <coughs> Watch your head. <clears throat> ah, a wonderful place. Like a tomb. You mean you don't like it? Why, I guess it's not what I expected, John. You thought a cave would be like what you see in pictures. With beautiful stalagmites and stalactites all over the place. Beautiful stream of clear water. Well, this could be like that. You can't tell what we'll find. There's water somewhere out here. We won't bother with it now. We're almost into where the big room is supposed to be. Isn't this far enough for today? You're not tired. Oh, a little, but I... The mud, damp rock all around. Disillusion? <laughs> I suppose so, yes. I should have told you it wasn't a picnic. We'll go back. No, no, as long as we've gone this far, I'm still with you. I'm glad you are, Ward. I don't know of anybody else I'd rather have along. Let's see what's up ahead. Yes. Dust on the ceiling. Mud under your feet. Can you imagine going in here without lights? Bump your head at every step. Be pretty lonely. There ain't all here. Watch your head. I, I see it. I don't think you have to be in the dark of the cave to be lonely. No, you don't. Widening out now. The wider the better. Not like open air, is it? No. Look. Flash your light out that way. It's big enough. Still have claustrophobia? I don't know. Must be a hundred feet to the roof. Whole army can hide in here. I think it has both mammoth and Carlsbad beaten. I'm I'm sure it's larger. Well, now what? It'll take months to explore. Yes. Well, let's go back. You're always in a hurry, Ward. I just want to get out in the sunlight again. To see, Grace? What? I beat you to it. Beat me to what? Grace and I are going to be married, so she's my territory now. Yes, she told me. Grace told you? Yes. When? On the train. Well, now you know. Yes, I do. Let's forget it. I never thought she'd take me instead of you. I said, let's forget it, will you? I know how you felt. I haven't been blind, but I had feelings too, Ward. Well, I wish you all the luck in the world. I suppose I would be as bitter as you. Listen. What is it? Tomorrow. Something's falling. Better get out of here. Look at the roof. Quick. Coming down. Why is it? Doctor said you'll be all right once you came out of it. What happened? Oh. Yeah. How'd I get here? When I heard the noises from the cave, I got worried and went for the state police. They went in and pulled you out. You guys had no business in there without somebody to look after you. What? Oh, the police. We've been unconscious for over a day. Roof came down on us. They'll do it. Limestone caves. Just... Started to fall in. The noise you made started vibrations. Nobody had been in there before. Yeah, I suppose that's what it was. You or your friend Rockwood should have known that. Where am I now? Hospital. Yes, Ward, in Dry Ridge. Oh. Feel well enough to get up? Yes, I think I can. I'd like a little rest. Sorry, but you don't have much time. 
Much time? The cave is closing up. We tried to shore up the roof, but we can't stop it. Well, that's an engineering job. You won't be able to get in if you wait much longer. Get in? I'm not going back in there. John's still in the cave. He wants to see you, Ward. Still in there? Doesn't he know when he's had enough? He's had enough, all right. Please. I'm not going in there again. John wants to see me and let him come up here. Who's he think he is? I get... I get hit. Please, Ward, John can't come. Oh, he can't. No, mister, and you couldn't either if you had a couple of hundred tons of rock pinning you down. What? His right leg is caught under the pole. They've been trying to get him loose, but there's not enough room to work. They've been drilling around him, but it hasn't done any good. Even in the papers from the city, they're making a big story out of it. I don't know why. I see. I wanted to go in and see him, Ward, but they wouldn't let me. Too dangerous. Somebody else will get trapped in there if we can't stop that seam closing. John sent word out for you to come in, Ward. Well, can't they pry up the rock and pull him out? You can't pry up a whole cliff. You better come if you feel you can or you won't have a chance. The tunnel roof is slipping an inch every hour. Think you can make it? An inch every hour? That's with the shoring we put in. Be more than that if we let it alone. But why does he want me to come in? What can I do? You're his friend, aren't you? Yes. It's pretty serious, Ward. We got food into him, water, strung an electric line in to keep him warm. It was dark in there. Got the lights around his chest so we'll get the heat. Needs heat more than light. Well, isn't there anything you can do? We're doing all we can. We were going to amputate his leg, then we could have brought him out. Had the surgeon ready to go in, everything, but he wouldn't let us. If we don't stop the roof, nobody will get in. And John won't get out. Feel strong enough to come along? Yes. Yes, I'll come. in the hospital. They told me. How's your head? It's all right. Come over closer. I can't come over where you are. How do you feel? Leg hurts a little. Did they give you anything for it? Yes, but the pain's still there. Doctor said to take these pills. Put them in my mouth, will you? Sure. I hope they help. It'll be nice to get outside again. The sun's shining. No, I think it's going to rain. That's too bad. Will you pull the blanket over my shoulder, Ward? It slipped off. Sure. That's much better. Anything you need? No, I'm quite comfortable. Food, water. You'd be surprised how much heat you can get from electric light bulbs. John, I, I think... They asked you to get my permission about the light, didn't they? Isn't that what you were going to say? It's a quick way to get out of here. Well, I'm not in that much of a hurry. I can stand a little inconvenience if it means saving a leg. One of the workers even brought in a newspaper so I can read. You're famous. Well, not exactly that, Walter. But it's strange seeing my name in headlines. Everybody wants to know if you'll be saved. As if there was any doubt about it. Makes a good story. I suppose that's it. I'm glad you came, Ward. They said you wanted me to. I did. Was there something you wanted me to do? Oh, no. I just wanted to finish our conversation, the one we started when the roof came down. It's not important. Yes, it is. A great deal more so now. 
Ward, I'm not a youngster that has to be lied to. What do you mean? I know I'm not going to get out of here. I can talk as if I am, but I'm quite sure I won't. You will if you... It may be better this way after all. And don't try to be optimistic with me. I heard what some of the men said when they were working around me. I can read the newspaper. And I certainly have a sense of logic. All right. Of course, I'll be just as cheerful if anyone else comes in again. But at least with you, I can be truthful, can't I? If that's what you want? As I said, it may be better this way. A great deal better than living world. How? Well, I suppose eventually I'll have lost place to you. But this way, I won't. I won't ever lose it. And I won't ever be forgotten. Go on. She'll always remember me as a great man, the man she should have married. She may even turn away from you because of it. So I'll never lose it to you. It's very simple, Walter. What about her? I just told you about her. You want her tied to the memory of a man she didn't love. She'll never know that she didn't, Ward. I know you must have thought that everything would be solved for you with me buried in a cave. But believe me, it isn't. I'll have her and you won't. She'll honor my memory. She'll be sure she loved me. Which is more than I'd be sure of if I lived. What happens to Grace the rest of her life, you don't care. Whether she's happy or not doesn't matter. It's fine that she'll mourn for you. And you smile about it. Of course I can smile. That's what I want. John, you're insane. Oh, no. I thought about it for a long time. The opportunity came, so I simply took it. Perhaps they'll erect a monument to me. That's more than I'd get as a chemistry professor. She won't waste her life away for you. I'll see to that. You won't be able to stop her. Goodbye, Ward. Give my love to Grace, will you? report from Dry Ridge is that little hope is seen for Professor John Rockwood. Listening to police calls? No, it's a regular broadcast. They're talking about John. Well, if the state trooper will let you sit in his car, I suppose he'll Please, Lord, I want to listen. The picture of courage. Reports say he is completely sure he will be saved. As one rescue worker put it, and I quote, I was overseas and I saw men under fire, wounded and dying. But I never saw a man who faced almost unendurable pain and certain death with a calm smile that John Rockwood has. He is a brave man. And to that, we can only add, the heart of the nation is with John Rockwood. In other parts of the world tonight, violence again flared in... Will I save him, Ward? I don't know. They can't take any more food into him. The entrance is closed up too much. I was just over by the cliff. They're drilling holes around the sea. How will that help? I don't know. John sent word out to me with the last man who went in. He said to wait for him that we'll be married when he gets out. There isn't any hope, is there, Ward? No, Grace. Grace. Yes? You don't love John. I... Look at me. Ward, please. You knew I came back to state because of you. Oh, I... 
You never said anything. I know I didn't, but you knew anyway. Ward. You can't let this throw you. You can't let it get us mixed up. You didn't come to see me or phone. I had to get myself straightened out. John asked me to marry him, and I said I would. I know you did, but that's over now. I can't You never loved John. All this doesn't change it. Even his death doesn't. No. He's not the man you think he is. He's the finest man I know. He isn't going to die. That's the way he wants you to think, Grace. I thought you were his friend. I am, but he But I'm not giving up hope. You can, but I'm not. Grace, will you listen? Don't touch me. You're acting just the way he wanted you to. If I am, I'm glad. Something happened to him in there. Something I don't... Something happened to you. You don't love him. Maybe I do. Maybe I do now more than I ever thought I could. Grace, you've got to understand. I'm sorry, Ward. That's how I feel. I think I'll wait forever for it. Yes. That's what he said you'd do. Yes, man. Exactly what he said. Well, making one last try, I thought you two might like to watch. What is it? We've set some charges on the side of the cliff. All we can do is dynamite and see what happens. Isn't that dangerous to John? He can't live if we don't get food to him. We have to try something, and it won't be any worse that we're sure of. You coming? Yes. You want to watch it, Joe Cam? Yes. Yes, I do. Over by the river. I don't think we'd better go any closer than that. We'll see. John will be all right. I hope it works for your sake. You were going to marry him, the paper said. Yes. Yes, I am. All right, Fred! Wish your pal luck, Del Camp. If you want him saved, this is his last chance, so start praying. I am. for a while. After that, I'm not sure. All right. One of the newspaper men is planning to promote a collection throughout the country. I'd like to stay and help with that. Collection? They thought it would be nice to erect something in honor of John. A monument? Perhaps. Something on top of the cliff... Show where a brave man fought for his life and lost. We haven't decided yet just what it will be. I see. I'll be at the university if you want me. John, I... I mean, Ward, I... I want to say something, but I can't. You don't have to say anything, Grace. I do, but... It's like... Like there's something in the way. I know. Do you understand, Ward? Yes. When it's gone, let me know I'll wait. I'm not sure it ever will be. 
You better get on. Yes. Goodbye, Ward. Goodbye. greatest emotional peak in their lifetimes, their moment of high adventure. Thank you, Ward Delkin, and we'll place your story in the archives of the High Adventure Society and mark it hold for future publication. And at next week's meeting, friends, we're going to a quarter mile of oil-soaked track for our moment of thrilling action, and we're proud to present one of the most famous of the High Adventure tales. It's called Hot Runaround and concerns a man who carried a grudge on one shoulder and death on the other in the cockpit of a racing car. Sound exciting? It is. Hot Runaround, next week on High Adventure. tonight in the high adventure role of Ward was Lawson Zerbe with Charlotte Lawrence, Don Douglas, and Ogden Miles. Broadcast engineer was Dick Quotermine. Sound was by Ronnie Harper. And the high adventure orchestra was under the direction of Sylvan Levin. Remember, next week, Mutual presents Hot Runaround, an auto racing story of high adventure. Carl Caruso speaking. This program has come to you from our New York studios. We invite you to stay tuned now for Billy Rose Pitching Horseshoes, which follows in just a moment. This is the world's largest network, serving more than 480 radio stations, the Mutual Broadcasting System. Barrier, a title that's a little clearer by the end of that show. It was part of the series High Adventure from May Day, 1948. You heard it here. On the Big Broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Earlier tonight, we heard an Edward R. Murrow report and an Irving Berlin song about Operation Vittles, the very successful Berlin airlift that ended 70 years ago this month. Well, not surprisingly, there was at least one Hollywood movie about the airlift, and we're going to hear its radio adaptation right now. The film was called The Big Lift, and it starred Montgomery Clift and Paul Douglas. Mr. Douglas is on hand for this version, but Mr. Clift has been replaced by a more experienced radio actor, Edmund O'Brien.
He was one of the half-dozen actors who portrayed Johnny Dollar over the years. I said it's about the airlift, but it's really more about romance, with Betty Lou Gerson as one half of that romance and many mentions of GCA, ground-controlled approach, here from January 18th, 1951, and NBC is the radio version of The Big Lift from Screen Directors Playhouse. Screen Directors Playhouse stars Paul Douglas, Edmund O'Brien, production The Big Lift, director George Seaton. This is the Screen Directors Playhouse, the Thursday night feature on NBC's all-star festival of comedy, music, mystery, and drama. Brought to you by RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. The makers of Anison for fast relief from the pain of headache, neuritis, and neuralgia, and by your local Buick dealer, who introduces the new 1951 Buick this coming Saturday, January 20th. Don't miss seeing the new 51 Buick. Tonight, the Screen Directors Playhouse is pleased to present Edmund O'Brien and Paul Douglas, starring in the first radio performance of the celebrated motion picture story, The Big Lift. But before we begin our adaptation, here's a word from RCA Victor. Inch for Inch, your best buy in television is RCA Victor 19-inch. Yes, a great many American families have taken this advice and bought the thrilling RCA Victor 19-inch console. Truly the most exciting buy in television. When you set out to become an RCA Victor million-proof television set owner, remember that the set you choose will be the very hub of your home for years to come. So select the model you really want most. And chances are, that model will be the kingly RCA Victor 19-inch console. Inch for inch, your best buy in television. Your 19-inch set will give you, in a great big way... All the matchless, million-proof qualities of sight and sound possible only to the world leader in electronics. Yes, inch for inch, your best buy in television is indeed RCA Victor 19-inch. And with it go wishes to you and your family for all the warmth and good cheer of million-proof television by RCA Victor. Now for the first act of the Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of The Big Lift, starring Paul Douglas as Hank and Edmund O'Brien as Danny. All right, men, all right, can the chatter... The 19th Troop Carrier Squadron is bound for a new job in Berlin. Oh, Have you read the papers, you know what it's all about. Blockade. Now, here's Berlin inside the Russian zone of Germany. The Russians have closed off the roads, the rails, the canals. Why that's happened doesn't concern us. The results do. Just imagine a city the size of Philadelphia, cut off from fuel, food, and everything it takes to make a city run. That's Berlin. 
That's where the Air Force comes in. We're going to feed Berlin by air. Pursuant to orders, the 19th Troops Carrier Squadron will proceed to Chickabee Falls, Massachusetts. And from there... The date? You know it. April 1948. And the planes came. Nice, fat C-54s. Their empty bellies ready to be filled with coal and flour and milk and oil. They came from everywhere. Aircraft 2589 to Iron Main Tower. Request landing instructions. Over. Iron Main Tower to Aircraft 2589. Who are you? Where are you from? Over. Where are we from? We're from the 19th from Hickam, Hawaii. Well, hush my ukulele. Maintain your altitude and you move in after the 54th from Alaska and the 20th from Puerto Rico. Anybody from Tibet or Afghanistan follows you. Aircraft 2589 QSY to Frankfurt Airways on 13788 megacycles for landing instructions. Over. Roger and out. Danny. Huh? You call me, Captain Gravy? Come on, come on. Kiss the Sandman bye-bye. Ugh. What a dream. That's one thing the Air Force can't take away from an engineer. His dream. Oh, you're breaking my heart, McCullough. Go on back and wake him up. We'll make Rhine Main in a few minutes. Yeah, oh. Pretty classy German, eh? Right out of Schopenhauer. Come on, rise and shine. Take a look at Germany, home of Rhine wines, fine beer, and assorted strudels. You awake, Hank? I'm awake. Boy, look at that rubble. This place sure caught it. <laughs> Not enough. This is where they should have used the A-bomb. Still with the big chip. I didn't ask for Germany. You got it. We all got it. Get used to it. Why me? Let the Krauts get used to starving for a while. Staff Sergeant Hank Kowalski, still fighting the war. I still got a war to fight. You can't get that prison camp out of your system, can you? Leave me alone, Danny. I only... Leave me alone. They want to feed the Krauts? Okay. They send me over here? Okay. But I don't have to like it. barracks this is. And believe me, Danny boy, this is the best part of Germany. Well, at least we'll get some sleep. All right, you men, keep it down. All All you flight engineers of the 19th report to your planes immediately. Don't blame me. I don't draw up these orders. You'll be taking a load to Berlin inside of an hour. Start moving. Welcome to Germany, Danny, and wake me up when you get back. Staff Sergeant Henry Kowalski here. Here. You're going too, Sergeant. I'm no flight engineer, sir. I'm GCA. Yeah, you're down for Berlin. Berlin? Wait till you see Tempelhof Field on a foggy day. You'll know why we need GCA operators just to bring them in. Just catch a ride on any plane, Sergeant. The cesspool ain't bad enough. I gotta fall right into the middle of it. Berlin yet. You 
stand right there, Hank. Watch me push the buttons. You'll be fascinated. I'm thrilled all to pieces. Say, uh, Captain Grammy, how's it feel to be flying co-pilot? Yeah, if Major Bedford wasn't along, I'd probably be in Sweden by now. I guess it's a milk run after you get used to it, huh, Major? Oh, sure, sure. All you do is stay in a 20-mile corridor, fly at exactly 170 miles an hour, hold exactly 6,000 feet, fly instruments continuously, and give radio checks on the second. Nothing to it. Uh... What kind of a field is this temple house? Well, see for yourself. There it is. What the... Oh, no. You must be kidding. Hey, what are they trying to do? Hide it behind those apartment houses? Mm-hmm. With your gear down, you can almost roll your wheels on those roofs. Ah, oh, don't kid yourself. When you land at Tempelhof, those roofs are five stories above you. And below, just for convenience, there's a graveyard. When the fog hits, letting down between those apartments is like threading a needle when your mouth is too dry to spit. What's the matter, boys? You're not talking. Who can talk? <laughs> Landing checklist, Captain. Heater switches off. Heater switches off. Booster pumps high. Booster pumps high. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Berlin. I gotta draw Berlin. you guys can use GCA all right with 200 feet ceiling and a quarter of a mile to make a landing. GCA, Sergeant, and a lot of things that haven't been invented yet. Now, let's get out of here. Hey, what about unloading all this stuff? Trucks get it as soon as we land. Mostly Germans do the work. I'll go check the weather. Yeah, give these crowds a chance and oh, steal your blind. Well, they're doing a good job. Hey, look, Hank, they're just people. Don't kid yourself. They're a special brand of people. They're the super boys. So what are you trying to do, start another war? I ain't finished with the last one yet. Uh, Major, uh, thanks for the lift, sir. Where's operations? Over there, Kowalski. Last building on the right. I guess I'll check in. I'll look for your next trip, Hank. If I'm sleeping, just leave your card. So long, Danny. Oh, Major... All right, if I leave the field for a while, I'd like to take a look at Berlin. I'm sorry, Sergeant. It's not allowed. You mean we just stand around while we're here? Well, the turnaround is just 20 minutes, McCullough. 20 minutes? Some command this is. (laughs) I wouldn't worry, Sarge. You wait till three or four months go by, and you'll really learn to hate it. Three or four months? No time for coffee this trip, Danny. We're trying to lop three minutes off the turnaround. Oh, have a heart. I've been up and down so many times this week, I feel like a yo-yo. Templehof, Danny. Templehof, Rhine, Maine. Templehof, Rhine, Maine. I'm living in a rut at 6,000 feet. Captain Grammy, I'd better have a look at number four when we get home again. Four months, and already he calls it home. Hey, get a load of this. Yeah, looks like the honor got out there. Wonder who they're putting on the show for. Who knows? Where's the truck? Oh, probably holding it up until after the shindig. Hey, look, Captain. They're coming this way. Yeah, must be some big grass around. I don't see any. Oh, Danny. Huh? I think... I think it's for us. Well, what are you looking at me for? I didn't do nothing. The 
crew this plane out and follow me. What's the pitch? Big show. You're the 100,000 airlift flight into Berlin. Oh, go on, Captain. They want you. They need you. You too, Sergeant. Huh? Me? Well, since when did they bother with engineers? Since now. Oh, brother. Bahad! Peace! Bahad! Peace! case will be made to the flight engineer Daniel McCullough from St. Paul, Minnesota, by Frau Frederica Burkhardt. Oh, Sergeant, look who you drew. Genuine 21 jewel movement. Heaven protects the poor enlisted man. Sergeant McCullough, I offer you this simple gift from all the women of Berlin, from the wives and mothers and those who are alone. We have watched your planes bring us food and cold and medicines and serums. And now there have been a hundred thousand such flights. This briefcase, Sergeant, is filled with the gratitude and admiration of hundreds of thousands of women. Please, take it. Hey, how about a kiss for a picture, huh? Uh, mark me the cushion, huh? Of course. Mmm. Mmm. Hey, you guys want another picture? <laughs> no, that's fine. All right, men, back to work. Come on, Well, Goodbye, Sergeant. Uh, your name is Frau Bergner? Yeah. Uh, your, uh, your husband... My husband was killed during the war. Oh, oh I'm sorry, I... It seems long ago. Well, perhaps we meet again. Ah, uh, no. Not a chance. They won't let me into Berlin. Oh, that is too bad. But just in case, in America, we have a phrase for situations like this. Phrase? What is it? What's your phone number, honey? <laughs> There is a phone for the apartment where I live. Wait a minute, I'll write it down. Seven five, four five, three two. Come on, Sergeant, let's go. Come on, Captain. Uh, maybe I'll get to look you up. Huh? Goodbye, Sergeant. Goodbye. Uh... Oh, Sergeant McCullough. Uh, before you get away, I'm Vic O'Malley, United Press. Just heard you're from St. Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anything I can do for you? Uh, yeah. You see, we service the St. Paul Dispatch, and they've been after me for one of those hometown boy flies lift stories. How about it? Oh, no, not me. What What you want is a glamorous pilot. Uh, who can be choosy? Besides, I want a different angle on this story. No, no, no thanks. I appreciate it, Mr. O'Malley, but I... Oh, uh... come on. It'll only take a few hours of your time. I, I want to follow you from Rhine, Maine with a load of flour. You know, pictures showing how the flour becomes bread in the Berlin bakery, that sort of stuff. Me? Shit, you... In Berlin? Berlin. Get me a 24-hour pass? Sure. You know, Mr. O'Malley, I feel it's my duty to let the folks back home know what's going on here. <laughs> That's great. Then I can count on you. You and Frau Burkhardt both. For Pete's sake, Sarge, will you get a move on? My captain calls. See you, Mr. O'Malley. See ya. Hey, hey, Danny. You're a hero. Hiya, Hank. How's the GCA business? Uh, just Danny. You keep this up, you might even get the Kraut Iron Cross. Tell me about it when I get back to Berlin. With a pass yet. A pass? <laughs> it's your laughing, boy. I'm going to show you how to live with these people. Sergeant McCullough! So long, Kowalski. Don't take any wooden blitz on your radar screen. Keep your shirt on, sir.
Our story will continue in just a moment. But now, if you suffer from pains of headaches, neuritis, or neuralgia, you should discover what many thousands have known for years, that Anison brings incredibly fast, effective relief. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, Anison contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven active ingredients in easy-to-take tablet form. Probably at some time you have received an envelope containing Anison tablets from your physician or dentist. Thousands of people have been introduced to Anison this way. Try Anison yourself the next time you suffer from the pains of a headache, neuritis, or neuralgia. You'll be delighted at how quickly relief can come. Anison is spelled A-N-A-C-I-N. Your druggist has Anison in handy boxes of 12 and 30 tablets and economical family-sized bottles of 50 and 100 for your medicine cabinet. Ask for Anison today. Now for the second act of the Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of The Big Lift. Starring Edmund O'Brien as Danny and Paul Douglas as Hank. Mr. O'Malley, it's all a matter of pulling the right switch at the right time. Uh-huh. How about this one, Sergeant? Hey, you pull that and the wings fall off. <laughs> Never mind him. He's just a pilot. The captain's jealous because he ain't getting his name in the paper. I'm jealous of that 24-hour pass you've got. Uh, tell me, doesn't this fog bother you guys? Nope. Long as you can see the wingtips, it's a clear day. Glad to hear it. Where are we? Coming into Templehof. Well, how do you know? Radio. GCA will be picking us up any minute now. GCA? Ground-controlled approach, radar and stuff. Maybe we don't know where we are, but they know on the ground. They just talk us down. GCA, coming in now, Sarge. Sounds like your friend, Hank Kowalski. Hey, Mr. O'Malley, take a listen on the headphones. This guy's the best in the business. You're now over building area, going high on glide path, adjust your rate of descent. Glide path improving, quarter mile from touchdown, on course, on glide path. Now you're drifting, correct course, three degrees right. Two degrees. Very nice correction. Now start breaking your glide. Take over visually now and complete your landing. Jigsaw over and out. Holy Ike, we're right in the clear. Pretty sharp, huh? Yeah, you said it. Look, I got to do a story on this thing. I'll fix it. Uh, Will your friend mind? Sure. Like a father minds talking about twins. It's a pleasure to help the press. You know what radar is, Mr. Malley? Yeah, roughly. Very roughly. Okay, you keep your eyes and ears open, too, Danny. You might learn something. Now, this here GCA shack is just the radar center. We send out a radio signal that bounces off the plane. When the signal comes back, we turn it into a spot of light or a blip. See, it shows up here on the screen. Looks like a television set, Sergeant. The same principle. Now, depending on where the blip is, we know just where the plane is. Maybe the pilot don't even know, but we know, so we just talk them down. I see. And the pilots, they have confidence in you? In this weather, mister... 
They gotta have. Uh, I hate to break up the lecture, but I've only got a 24-hour pass. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, Sergeant. Sure. Well, thanks very much for the talk. We have to start following that flower around. You want to come with us, Hank? I ain't interested in seeing a bunch of krauts being fed. You know, the Jerry's wanted to sign a separate armistice with my pal here, but he's holding out for a castle on the run. Ah, guy like you. You don't know nothing. I know a Shotzi in Berlin. That's something. A Shotzi? Hey, well, well, look, Junior, you're liable to get in trouble running around by yourself. Uh, I'll go along for the ride. Okay, Sarge, is the last shot. With a loaf of bread in his arms yet, standing in front of a bakery. Annie McCullough, the spirit of Berlin. Nuts. That's got it. Thanks a million, Sergeant. A pleasure, believe me. I want to get the story, I'll send it to you. Do that. Well, enjoy your pass. So long. Sorry, I'll see you. See you, so long. Boy, they'll love me in St. Paul. Yeah. Come on, I, I want a quick phone booth and a frown named Frederica. There's a phone booth at the corner. Hey, uh... There's some place I can take it to dinner, Hank. There's nothing around here. There's a spot in the British zone ain't bad, the Saverin. Saverin, got it. Uh, look, maybe we can make an evening of it. I'll pick up my Shotzi, too. Oh, oh Hank, you've got a Shotzi? Oh, after four months, what do you expect? Well, you're a trader. Ah, don't give me that trader business. With Gertie, it's just like I want it. If I want to see her, I see her. If I want to talk to her, she talks. And if I don't want to, she keeps her mouth shut. She must be nuts about you. I should worry. She gives me one day's service on my laundry. The PX takes a week. Here's the phone booth. Well, you call and I'll get us a taxi. Okay, only takes a second. Taxi! Hey, Fritz! Well, bring it here, Buster. Bring it here. That's it. If I wanted ten feet away, I'd ask for it ten feet away. That's more like it. Peter? Yeah, sure, Peter. What's the matter, Vienna Schnitzel? You think I'm going to take a punch at you? Please, no English. Ain't that a shame, no English. Well, I learned my German a hard way, and you... Hey, I get a... hey, hey. Yeah? She's not home. The guy who answers said she is... Boykenberis Barbarossa Strassi Oh, well, that's on the way back to the field. I'll, I'll drop you. Come on, get in. This can't be the place. There's nothing but rubble. This is the place. That's a work gang clearing a mess away. But, but they're women. Women working like this? So if we lost the war, your sister'd be doing it. Take your choice. I don't like... Hey. Hey, there she is. Yeah, there she is. Don't she look glamorous in them overalls? <laughs> well, uh, happy fraternization. Remember me? Ah, Sergeant McCullough. Well, what do you know? So, you did get to Berlin. For about 24 hours. You, you look fine. No. No, I look like a woman who works with bricks. Well, in Berlin, if you are between 18 and 55, you must work. You speak English very well. You could be a translator or something. No jobs, but thank you. Now I practice my English with you, maybe, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> but definitely, yeah. Uh... Uh, most times I practice only in letters to America. Oh, uh, relatives? Friends? A friend in St. Louis. Well, I'm a friend from St. Paul. Frau Burkhardt, will you have dinner with me tonight? Dinner? Yeah, thank you. I'll be through in 20 minutes. Then we go and I change my clothes. 
You will wait, Sergeant? The sergeant will wait. I'll just sit down here in this packing case. Here you see Berlin, as it really is. Ruin. Oh, oh Sergeant, you're hurt. A bullet. Oh. Oh. Just, just help me out of this. What's the matter, will you? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's a fine place to put a wheelbarrow. I should not have let you sit down on that old packing ah, case. That's my own stupid fault. Look at my uniform. <laughs> Looks so nice and fresh. <laughs> you know, you know, if this stuff hardens, you're gonna have one more statue in Berlin. <laughs> yeah, in memory of the airlift. Don't worry, Sergeant. There's the tailor shop downstairs from where I live. Oh, this is a fine way to start a leave. Look at that. I personally will make it up to you. Yeah? Well, all right. <laughs> Bathroom. I'll have to thank him for it. He has a room next door. He will be glad to talk to you. Duck? You know, if you lived any closer to Temple Hop, they'd be landing planes on your kitchen table. <laughs> Here's where the airlift planes make their... Uh, what is the expression? Landing approach. You know, walking to your place, looking at the shops, they're almost empty. You wouldn't know there was any airlift at all. Ask the people of Berlin. We know... We are grateful. Ah, people are people. War's over. Yeah, the war is over. Well, I go down and get your uniform now. If you want company, Herr Stiefel's room is through that door. I'll be right back, Sergeant. Lorraine? Hello. Oh, the American Sergeant. I'm Stiefel. Danny McCullough. I want to thank you for the use of your robe. Oh, it's a pleasure. You'll pardon me for not leaving the window, but, uh, yeah, that's another one. I have to mark it down. Uh, pardon me, but what are you doing? Well, it's very simple. I'm a Russian spy. What? <laughs> Surprised? Don't worry. The Americans know that I do this. But, but why? Well, you see, I count the airlift planes. Each time a C-54 comes, I mark it down. And every three hours, I phone the Russians. Well, Steve, that's crazy. They can read the official airlift figures in the paper. Oh, but those Russians don't believe official papers. So, you see, I make a check. Well, what happens when your count agrees with the official figures? Oh, that would make the Russians very unhappy. So every day, I knock off a few planes here and a few planes there. And the Americans know about this? Oh, sure, once they face the phone for me. Oh, some system. Hey, uh, do the Russians have many spies? Mm, 15,000, maybe. Oh, that's great. Why don't the American authorities do something about it? Oh, they do, Sergeant. You see, they have spies, too. Not so many, just about 10,000. 10,000? <laughs> you mean to say there's 25,000 spies spying on each other? <laughs> well, you see, it would be quite a mess if it weren't for one thing. What's that? There are maybe 500 spies who work for both sides. That way, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. Guten Tag, Herr Stevens. Guten Tag. Sergeant, I forgot. The electricity... Hey, hey, wait a minute now. Calm oh. down. Catch your breath. But your uniform. What about my uniform? I forgot all about the electricity. Today there is no current in this part of the American zone. Most of the generators are in the Russian zone. Look, and just no... tell me one thing. Where is my uniform? The tailor. He took it to a friend in the British zone to use his equipment. Oh, fine, fine. We're supposed to meet a buddy of mine for dinner. Well, you still go. Like this? In a bathrobe? Oh, well, uh, I have clothes, Sergeant. Not so nice, maybe, but you're welcome. Oh, no, no, sir. If I'm caught out of uniform, I've had it. You would look very German. Nobody would know. And this was going to be such a nice 24 hours. 
Well, there goes another one, Herceva. Oh, forget it. That one was American propaganda. What a city. Well, I said I wanted to see Berlin, so I might as well see it as a civilian. Herceva, let's have those clothes. And now, before the curtain rises on the next act, don't forget that the new 1951 Buick will be shown for the first time anywhere this Saturday, January 20th. Don't miss this gala opening day at your nearest Buick dealers. That's the day the entire all-star lineup of 1951 Buicks will be introduced. And you are personally invited to be among the first to see them. See the car of your dreams and everyone's dreams with its new features, new smartness, New and distinctive Buick lines. And what else has the new 51 Buick got that sets the pace again? Plenty. Check this new honey for its power, its looks, its price. And you'll see why the 51 Buick is the smart car, the smart performer, the smart buy for 51. Remember the date, this Saturday, January 20th. And the place, your nearest Buick dealers. Don't miss seeing the new 1951 Buick. This is the Screen Director's Playhouse. We continue with the third act of The Big Lift, starring Paul Douglas as Hank and Edmund O'Brien as Danny. Your friend usually late for dinner engagements, Arthur? He's probably sitting up with a sick radar screen. And uh, my name isn't Sergeant. It's Danny. But I can't very well call you that. In Germany, these things take time. You saw me in a bathrobe. You can call me Danny. <laughs> of course. It does make a difference. All right, Danny. And you're Frederica. Frederica? No. Better make it Freddy. Is this a girl's name in America? Oh, sure. Half the girls in America named Freddie. The rest are named George. Hey, here comes my buddy. Wait till he sees me in a civilian getup. Guten Tag, Herr Kowalski. What? Well, if it ain't Fritz. In the flesh. You sure went native in a hurry. It's a big deal. A tailor ran away with my uniform. Frau Burkhardt, Sergeant Kowalski. How do you do, Sergeant? Yeah. Where's your girl? Gertie, here she comes now. Some cabbage head. I'll say this for she irons a good shirt. Hey, stupid! Yeah. This is Danny and Frau Burkhardt. Meet Gertie. My name is Gerda. Gertie's good enough. Sit down. You are Gerda, and I am Frederica. When we are with the Americans, what happens to our men? She does as I say. That's all the manner she needs. Hank, please. Take it easy, boy. Uh, hey, you, Frederica. Danny tells me her husband was killed in the war. Yeah. What was he? SS? Hank, cut it out. Just a question. No. My husband was drafted. Oh, sure. Not a volunteer in the whole German army. If you'd like to know about my father and mother, I'd tell you that. Never mind him, Freddy. He's a bug on the subject. No, I don't mind at all, then. My mother was killed in an air raid. My father went much earlier. He was a professor at the University of Berlin. 
When they burned the books, he spoke against the government. I don't see him since. Frederica, your father must have been a very brave man to do what he did. Not brave. He just believed strongly. My father believed too. In the wrong thing. Your father was a louse. Papa can be the biggest jerk in the world, but in Germany, what he says goes. He tells you when to talk, think, die. Then along comes another jerk like Hitler, and he becomes the papa even for the papas. You're a great guy to be sounding off. What's the matter with you? Oh, you big ape. You're treating Gerda the same way. You tell her what to do, what to say, what to hey, think. Wait what... a minute, wait a minute. Hey, you know something? You're right. Yeah. Well, when I'm wrong, I admit it. Well, admit it to Gerda. Bravo, Danny. Well, Gertie, uh, from now on, you can disagree with me. Out loud? Well, it better not be too loud. And I can ask questions? Sure. Good. I'm so mixed up. You are American. Danny is American. Today, there is much America in Germany. So I want to know about America. <laughs> okay. Shoot. What is... Democracy. Well, it's... Why, uh... What is it? Well... Okay, answer it, Hank. Well, democracy's democracy. What kind of a stupid question is that? This... Look, you two talk politics. Freddie and I are going to dance. Uh, I hope. Of course. Well, now, look, let's, let's start with the voting, huh? Yeah. I don't think I like him, your friend. Hank? He's all right. In a way, you can't blame him much for his hate campaign. He was in a prisoner of war camp. German. They must have given him a rough time. All that. Can't we forget it, Danny? Sure. I... I don't want to be personal, but... You mentioned a friend in St. Louis? Oh, yeah. A man? Yeah, a man. Oh. Is there anything... <laughs> no, Danny. He's a family friend. There is nothing. Oh. Then there's a clear track, huh? Clear track? An American expression meaning... It looks like a long, beautiful night. Oh, yeah, Danny. I'm sure it will be a clear So, America, Hank, it is run by the people. Right. A people's government. Right. Like in Russia. Wrong. Okay, okay, what I said. Now, look, call it a people's government in Russia. But the point is, who is boss? The people or the government? Now, if you... Something wrong, Hank? Uh, I think I just saw an old friend. Who? That guy. Just leaving. You know him? That German? I know him. I know him all right. Gertie, just sit here. I'll be back in a few minutes. Out for a nice, lonely walk, huh? I do not understand. Yeah, me too. Just a walk. Please, I must go. No, I... no, no. You know, it's funny meeting us like this. You know, you're the spitting image of a guy I used to know during the war. He was a guard in a prison camp. No, guard. Never. You, you make, make mistakes. What's the matter? Relax. Take it easy. I'm just holding on to you because I like you. Yeah. I want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I want to tell you about this guy. Oh, he was quite a German. Yeah. He hated Americans and he hated Poles and I was both. So he took it out on me. 
You know what he used to do? He'd take me aside in the woods and give me German lessons. Nothing easy like Gutentag or Afwiedersehen, but nice little tongue twisters like the Potsdamer Postkutcher puts the in Potsdamer Postkutsch Kasten. Well, I made mistakes, lots of mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And whenever I did, this fella, he'd correct me with a rifle butt in the kidneys. Took me about seven months, but I learned German. Of course, I've forgotten some of it, but if the weather changes suddenly or I bend too quick, you'd be surprised how it all comes back to me. Nine, nine, it, it wasn't me, come not here, me, not come me. Come here, you got a little English lesson coming to you. Now, Germans have trouble with the W's, don't they? I'll give you an easy one. Just say it after me. <laughs> Which way went the winged whippoorwill? I don't want to hear any V's instead of W's in there, or I'll have to correct you. Now, try it. Which way went the winged whippoorwill? Now, say it. Which way? Ah. Which way, I said. Now try it again. Which way? Again. 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 I'm a dead duck if I'm picked up in these clothes. We'll have to run. But, Hank. Gerda will take care of him. Hurry. Now you're, you're one of us, Danny. You know what it means to run, to hide, to be a German. Come on in, Hank. You okay? Yeah. Hans, swollen. Freddy's out for a while. Uh, this is her Steve and my friends, Hank and Gerda. How are you? How do you do? Good enough. Well, I leave you alone. Hank, what was the fight all about? What happened? I knew that guy once. In a prison camp. Oh. For seven years, Danny. For seven years, I've been waiting to beat that face in. So now I've done it. Why do I feel like this? So lousy, so dirty and rotten. Hank, it is better than feeling good. Hank, yes. They're all right, Freddy. Uh, what about the uniform? Oh, tonight there was no electricity in the British zone. What? Oh, early tomorrow you get it for certain. Well, what am I going to do tonight? I will sleep with a woman down the hall. You can have my room. Well, I... Please. Come on, Gertie. Let's all get some sleep. Good night, Frederica. Good night. Good night, Danny. Good night. Good night, Danny. Okay, okay, good night. That's enough already. See you at the base in the morning, Danny. Yeah, see you. So, Danny, it has not been what you expected, your leave? No. Not what I expected at all. I am sorry. Don't be. I... We've gotten to know each other pretty well, Freddy. That's... That's very important. Is it, Danny? Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. The way you look at me, I think, Danny, you love me just a little. More than a little, Freddy. More. Can't you wait a minute? Next trip, Hank. I gotta see Freddy. Well, uh, come here. That's what I want to talk to you about. Huh? Well, for a week now, I've been delivering your coffee and stockings and blouses and cigarettes for you. Yes, yeah, so? so? So I called you a sucker and I was right. I had a friend in the document center look her up. 
Frau Frederica Burkhardt. Yeah, look at that. What'd I tell you? That husband of Freddy's was in the SS. Yeah. Huh? It's real pretty, isn't it? Yeah, it gets prettier. A wonderful father never saw a university. Had a little dough and he wanted to keep it, so he played ball with the boys. He walked out on a mother in 1939 because she happened to be Polish. Nice guy. I guess it's true. Must be true. I guess it's true. All of it. There are many other things I lied about. But, but, Freddie, why? Because I have to survive. Look around you, Danny. Bricks, wreckage, our lives. It's all this reason enough for a lie, to escape from it for even a moment now and then. I think, Freddie, I think if I were you, I'd, I'd lie and cheat and steal anything to... Oh, you poor kid. Pity, Danny? I love you. But more important, I... I understand you. Freddie, Freddie, for days I, I've had something buzzing around in my head and, and now I know it's right. It has to be. Danny, what is this? Will you marry me? That's all. Will you marry me, Freddie? Why, you big lug-headed sap. Look, I don't have to ask your permission to get married. Just take this envelope to Freddie and have her sign the papers. You can't get married now. Why not? Airlift personnel has been here six months ago and stateside. I'll see the CO. There must be some way to hurry things up. Uh, she must have really fed you a line. Now, look, there was no line. Nothing nothing cheap or nasty. Why, why she's got, she's got dignity and, and fineness and... And, brother, she's really had it. And so have a lot of other people in this town. Well, I never realized how yeah, tough... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel so sorry for them. Every Sunday at 4 o'clock, I stand right here and bleed. Okay, Danny, I'll see she gets your letter. Gertie and me will take a walk by Freddy's place. Okay, i got to get back to the plane. Well, run real fast. Maybe you'll break your leg. Can you imagine, Gertie? Just like that, he's going to get married. It is very nice. She will go to America and find out for herself about this democracy. Uh, you're still harping on that. I don't see how it can work. Here, just in Western Europe, there are so many peoples, languages, customs. Uh, it would be impossible. Impossible, she says. Look, tell me, Dopey. You ever hear of Manhattan? It is in Brooklyn? It ain't in Brooklyn. It's an island, 12 miles long and 3 miles wide. In Manhattan, we got more Irish than there are in Dublin. More Jews than in Israel, more Germans than in Dusseldorf, more Italians than in Naples, and a half a million Poles besides French and Greek and all the others. And you know something, Gertie? They all get along all right. Maybe they don't all love each other, but at least they've learned to live together. Hey, ain't this where Frederica lives? This is it. And there's her neighbor, Herr Stieber. Well, let him give her a letter. I don't even want to talk to her. Hello, we've got Danny's friend, yeah? Hi. Would you give this letter to Frau Burkhardt? It's from Danny. Oh, of course. I give it to her with this other letter I bring her from the post. Yeah, office. yeah, yeah. Just see that she gets it. Come on, Gertie. Now, look, you know what Manhattan is. You understand that. 
John? Oh, here, I've, I've brought your mail for Burkhart. Uh, this is from America, St. Louis, and this is from Danny. Oh, Duncan. Wait a minute, that's the wrong letter for Burkhart. The other one, that's... Please the tell Steve. You don't read Danny's first? Please. You know that Danny's a remarkable oh. young fellow. He has a certain feeling. Really, he doesn't even know me. And yet you know what he did? He gave me these shoes from the PX. Look at these wonderful shoes. I what? Oh, I was reading. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Herr Stieber, you're going out again? Soon. I wonder you would mail this letter for me. I, I wanted to leave quickly, and I'm very busy. To St. Louis, of course? Yeah. You're so busy for Burkhardt. Is this something special? Yeah, I'm going to marry Danny. Oh, so you're going to marry Danny? Yes, Steve, I'm very anxious for my letter to be posted. Oh, of course, of course. I'll go right now. Hmm, to St. Louis. Hmm. Grammy, don't you understand? Yeah, sure, sure. Look, I'm going home. I'm posted stateside for Saturday. I can't get out of it. Yeah, you ought to be celebrating, Sergeant. Celebrating? If I'm going to be married at all, I've got to be married today, tomorrow, or the next day at the latest. Go argue with the weather. We're fogged in at Rhine, Maine. Maybe for a week. Sergeant, right now, you haven't got a prayer. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, I have, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over and over. You check today's weather? Tight. Not a break. Try tomorrow again, Sergeant. Captain Gramey, today's my last chance. I'm, I'm drafted out tonight. Well, the Met section says the fog might rise a little. Then maybe? Maybe? Yeah, Maybe. Sergeant, I don't know whether I'm making this flight for you or the Air Force. We'll name our first son after you, Graeme McCullough. <laughs> the poor kid. Don't count on too much, Danny. Flying in this soup is one thing. Landing is another. Yeah? Well, we'll soon find out. Yep, right now. This is Big Easy 3-7 calling Temple Hop Tower. Big Easy 3-7 to Temple Hop Tower. Over. Danny, grab those earphones. Yeah. Tampa Hop Tower to Big Easy 3-7. Go ahead. Over. How's it for a landing? Over. My head is thick. Let GCA bring it down. Have a look for yourself. Over. GCA, roger and out. This is Kowalski's ship, Captain. We'd just like him to crash us to keep me from getting married. Big Easy 3-7, this is Jigsaw. How do you read? Over. Jigsaw from Big Easy 3-7. Reading you 5x5. Five five. Over. Roger, 3-7. Understand 5x5. Five five. Give my love to Danny and do not acknowledge further instructions on this transmission. Maintain your present heading of 270. Start your descent. 800 feet, Danny. Maybe it'll thin out. Not much. 600 feet. See anything, Captain? Yeah, my wife and two kids. 400 feet, we're down a minimum. Blank. Dead white. Sorry, Danny, I'm no hero. We're going home. Tower from Big Easy 37. 
Failed to break through on approach. Lewis will return to Rhine, Maine. Over. Roger. Over now. Thanks, Captain. You did your best. Don't worry. You'll work it out some way. Sure. With me posted stateside and Freddy and Jack. Fire signal. Number four engine. Look at that smoke. Feather four. Feather four. Pull the bottle. Got it. CO2 isn't working. Still burning. Of all the miserable luck. Captain... We'll have to go in now, won't we? Well, you don't have to be so happy about it. Temple Hot Tower from Big Easy 3-7. Number four engine on fire. Full fire bottle still burning. Request emergency clearance. Over. Big Easy 3-7. Temple Hot Tower. Jigsaw will contact you for emergency landing. Over. Big Easy 3-7. This is Jigsaw. Your present heading is 262. Correct to 270. Very good. Your course is good. Your altitude is 1,200. Your position, three miles from touchdown. Begin descent. You're drifting slightly left. Nothing to worry about. Steer right to 273. You're now approaching on course perfectly. Your new heading is now 271. I can't see a lousy foot in front of my face. I got my eyes shut. One and one-half miles from touchdown. On course. Going 50 feet low on glide path. Please correct 50 feet. You're doing fine. You're flying beautifully. Over building area. Ten feet too low on glide path. Ten feet too low. Please correct ten feet. Good. Good. One-eighth mile from touchdown. On the button. You will land in four seconds. One. Two. Three. Four. We gotta go be witnesses at a funeral. Go away, Hank. Look, will you cut out the clown and come on, open up. And he's gone down to the consulate. We're all meeting at Freddy's. They're gonna get married. Now open up, Gertie. You big baboon. My name is Gerda. Are you drunk or something? No. I read a book. Finally, I know what democracy is. It is not you, a big stupid jackass. One more crack like that and I'll knock you from here to Potsdam. Stormtrooper! Stormtrooper? I go to the American military government. They have found books about democracy. Democracy is independence and decency and freedom and... And you are a big bully. Gertie, baby, now you got it. Now you know what democracy is. Overstuffed, big mouth. That's the idea, baby. Criticize the government. You, you, Jack. Ah, uh, Gertie. I mean, Gerda. Come on, baby, get your coat, will you? We're going to be late, baby. <laughs> Oh, Steve. Oh, come on upstairs. There's going to be a wedding. I guess you know, huh? Yes, Freddie and Danny, I. Danny, Danny. 
Before you go up, uh, this letter. Huh? Yes, it's from Frau Burkhardt. She gave it to me, the mail. I, well, for certain reasons, I opened it. You'd better read it. Well, I, I don't know. If, it, if it's Freddy's letter... Look, I... Danny, read it. In this way, I say thank you for the shoes, the airlift, for everything. And I'm very sorry. Very sorry. It's addressed to St. Louis. Carl Mirbach. And so, my darling, it is sure now that I will be with you again someday. You must write and tell me how long I must stay with him until I can get a divorce. I was worried. Yeah, some groom. You took your sweet time getting here. Oh, leave him alone, Hank. If it's arranged, Danny, when I will come to you in a month? No. I think it might be longer than that. Oh, no, Danny. And even longer still until you get to St. Louis. St. Louis? Here's your letter, Frederica, to your boyfriend. How did he get to the States, marry a whack? Hey, hey what's going on here? What, what is this? Yeah, read it yourself. Well, Danny... What do you want me to say? Nothing. Don't say anything. In a little while, I'm going home. I'll be glad. I'll be glad I'm back in the States and you're in Berlin. This is where you belong. In the rubble with the rest of the rats. Danny! Oh, please, please, wait. Leave me alone, girl. No, no. Don't judge people by a person, Danny. For what she did, there is no excuse. I don't know how she could do it. You must look back. The lies. The cruelty. What do you want me to do? Justify it? No, Danny, no. But at least you must know we all are not Frederica's. You must not think that. No, Gerda. You aren't. I know that. But just let me go. I'll, I'll see you sometime in the States, maybe. No. No, I stay here in Germany. I want something different, Danny. Better. But... I... I try to find it here. It is my country. Sure. Make it good. Maybe you can. I hope so. So long, Gerda. There... Uh... There's your plane, Danny. I'll never get off in this fog. You got in, didn't you? They're up there, all right. Uh, some switch, eh? You and me, you hated them and I loved them. Okay, so maybe we're both wrong, huh? Gertie's okay. So is Stieber. Must be plenty of others. You know, I suppose if you're ever going to sell these stoops a new way of living, you got to be a good salesman. You know, maybe if we don't shove them too hard... Sure, uh, sure. Uh, you don't want to talk about it. Have a good trip, Danny. Yeah. Hey, what about you? When are you going home? Oh, I forgot to tell you, I switched to permanent duty. You what? Well, I... I you know how it is. You know, they're getting in some new GCA equipment, and well, they want me to stick around and help kick the bugs out of it. So it's... you're going to grow old and gray on the airlift? Ah, uh, well, the Russians won't keep up the blockade forever. They can try. Let them... Uh, 
Take a look. What good's a blockade if planes are up there when even the birds won't fly? Well, it's my trick in the GCA shack. Can you find your plane okay? I think so. So long, Hank. Go on, Danny. Don't get lost in the fog. I won't get lost. See you, Hank. Next Thursday, the screen director's playhouse promises two more magnificent performances as we present our adaptation of Alfred Hitchcock's thrilling motion picture experience, Spellbound. In the starring roles, you'll hear Joseph Cotton and Academy Award winner Mercedes McCambridge. Now, here are tonight's stars, Paul Douglas and Edmund O'Brien. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you very much for your applause. But if you enjoyed the big lift, well... Well, the one to thank is the fellow who created the picture, and we mean created. Yes, sir, because as writer-director, he conceived the idea, wrote the original story and the screenplay, and then flew a crew over to Germany to put it all on film. So for Paul and me, it's, it's quite a pleasure now to introduce to you the wonderful guy who made the big lift. And if I can name a couple of other standouts, Eddie, there's Miracle on 34th Street and Apartment for Peggy. Ladies and gentlemen, the director, Mr. George Seaton. Thank you, Paul, Eddie. As long as we're throwing credit around, let's not forget those guys who did the flying in Germany. Yeah, and a lot of the acting in the picture, too, George. Hey, what about that, George? How do you take a bunch of ordinary airmen, put them in front of the cameras, and make actors out of them? The answer to that one is easy. You can't do it. Flyers aren't actors, and they can't play characters. They can play themselves. The result? Performances that are real and honest. And that's what we wanted in the picture. Well, you had an honest story to begin with, George. If we did, it's because it was written from observation on the scene. You saw it for yourself, Paul. The story of Hank and Danny and their adjustment is the story of an awful lot of people. Thanks, fellas, for telling it so well this evening. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. The Big Lift was presented to the courtesy of 20th Century Fox. With studio tonight, we salute for the great Hollywood premiere of Mudlark on January 30th. It's for the Irene Dunn special charity, the St. John's Hospital. Edmund O'Brien can currently be seen in the Paramount production, The Redhead and the Cowboy. Paul Douglas can soon be seen in the 20th Century Fox production, 14 Hours. George Seaton with William Pearlberg is currently producing the Paramount picture, Rhubarb. Tonight's cast included Betty Lou Gerson as Frederica, Doreen Tuttle as Gerda, and Henry Rowland, Eddie Marr, Tony Barrett, Paul Dubois, Byron Kane, and Ralph Moody. The Big Lift was adapted for radio by Richard Allen Simmons. The Screen Director's Playhouse is produced by Howard Wiley and directed by Bill Karn. This is Jimmy Wallington speaking and inviting you to listen next Thursday when we present Joseph Cotton and Mercedes to Cambridge in Spellbound with Screen Director Alfred Hitchcock. Someday, Mr. and Mrs. Cary Grant start a new series as The Blandings on NBC. The Big Lift, from Screen Director's Playhouse in the winter of 1951. The setting for that drama, the Berlin Airlift, came to a successful end 70 years ago this month. And the big broadcast has come to an end for tonight. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell... 
This is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's true. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. Twill be my delight to sing again, bring again the things you want me to. I love to spend each Sunday with you. The Earth is getting warmer, and some countries have made big promises to conserve energy. But are they all doing their part? The United States right now is not on track to meet its climate change commitments under the Paris Agreement. We'll look over carbon report cards ahead of the upcoming Climate Action Summit. Plus, Iran's leaders are headed to the U.N. Will they cross paths with President Trump on the next morning edition from NPR News? Join host Matt McCluskey tomorrow morning from 5 to